in the AM, Wednesday morning broadcast at 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org, and of course on the NSN app, where we welcome your uh, participation, your comments. You can comment on the home screen of the app, both in Android and iPhone form. Six minutes after the hour, we are uh, in our nine days format, which will go through uh, the end of this week. Monday is a regular format day here at JM and the AM, back to our regular music format. Meanwhile, we are building up to the observance of Tisha B'Av, which this year is on the 10th of Av, this coming Saturday night and Sunday. And um, one of the ways we do that is by presenting spoken word programming here at JM and the AM to uh, tone down the uh, the tone of the show and to remind everybody that this is a different week than all the other weeks of the year. It is, in fact, what we refer to as the nine days. Uh, yesterday we started a um, lecture by Beryl Wine on the topic of Torah scholarship from his Jewish Values series. We'll take this opportunity to play it in its entirety and... Um, Remind everybody that his information about his lectures is available at 1-800-499-WEIN and the website at RabbiWine.com. Uh, this is his Jewish Values series, and this is the topic of Torah scholarship at JM in the AM. Good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight's lecture deals with uh, Limura Torah, Talmud Torah, Torah as a uh, central and overriding value in Jewish life. Now, uh, I am going to divide the lecture into a number of different sections because the rabbis view Talmud Torah as having uh, many different influences and purposes and reasons uh, in Jewish life. Uh, So the Gemara says that the purpose of studying, the purpose of Talmud Torah, of studying Torah, especially Torah Shebaal Peh, which to us is the Mishnah and the Talmud, is La Suke Shmatza Aliba that we should be able to arrive at the Halakha. We should be able to arrive to know what are the practices of Judaism. What is a Jew supposed to do? Part of Torah, we all know, is greatly theoretical it's a stimulating thought but the purpose that the rabbis placed upon it was that Torah would teach us uh, how to behave what we're supposed to do for instance the Chofetz Chaim 
in his introduction to the Mishnah Brura, the third section, uh, the third volume of the Mishnah Brura, which is the monumental commentary uh, on uh, the on Orachayim, on the first of the four sections of the Shulchan Aruch. So the Chavetz Chaim says it's almost impossible to be to really be a uh, Sabbath observer or Shomer Shabbat if one doesn't know what the halachas are, if one doesn't know what the rules are, and especially such a matter as Shabbat, which is rather complicated and has many different offshoots from it. So therefore the study of Torah is necessary so that you can just be a Jew to know what to do. And the rabbis therefore said, Lo amhor etz chosid. Someone who is ignorant uh, can never be pious because he doesn't know how to be pious. He doesn't know what the requirements are. He doesn't know what the Torah demands of him. And the rabbis stressed that over and over again. They said, Godel Talmud, great is study, because study brings to behavior. It brings to action. It defines for us the Jewish way of life. And that's why the Rambam said, for instance, in his famous statement, the Rambam, when he wrote the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam said, anybody who has my book will need no other books. Rambam said you only needed two books, uh, the uh, Torah Shabbat the Tanakh, the Bible, and my book, the Mishnah Torah. Because in the Mishnah Torah is every halacha that is necessary. You can know how to be a Jew from the Mishnah Torah. Well, uh, he was a little bold in saying that, uh, because of the fact that there has been no book that has spawned as many books as the Rambam's work, the Mishnah Torah. Last year in Israel alone, there were over 300 books published on the Rambam's book that needed no other books. So there have been uh, literally thousands of books written about it. But the idea of the Rambam is clear. The idea of the Rambam is that to be a Jew... You have to know, and therefore he's giving you the book that will give you knowledge. And that that's the primary purpose for the study of Torah, is to know what to do. To know how to be a Sabbath observer, to know what foods are uh, kosher and what is not kosher, to, uh, to, to know the, uh, the nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty of Judaism. Now, in Jewish life, uh, there have been cycles. Uh, there was for a long time what we could call societal Judaism, in which uh, people really weren't that knowledgeable, but they did everything right because the society, uh, so to speak, uh, buttressed them and instructed them. That's the way it was in the shtetl in Eastern Europe, and that's the way it was in the Mellas of Morocco. There was a Jewish society. At the top of the Jewish society, there was a top, thin crust of great intellectual scholars and rabbis and teachers who set the tone for the community. And then the community behaved according to that. So people uh, 
saw what their neighbor did, or they remembered what their father did, and that was their practice, even though they could not study uh, Talmud or the Poskim at all. That has changed in our time. There was a famous article written by Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik here of the Hebrew University, by Yoshebeir Soloveitchik's son, and uh, about ten years ago, or maybe even longer, he wrote a famous article in tradition, it's been recopied many times, in which he said that uh, we have seen over the past century, and the past half century really, the great shift in Jewish life from a societal life to a book life. In other words, uh, it's not anymore what my father did, it's I'm going to look it up and see what the Mishnah Bura says, what the Chazonish says, I'm going to see what it says in the book. And that that is a fundamental sea change in Jewish life. And part of it is brought about by the fact that our society has changed greatly as well. Uh, the, uh, the secularization of Jewish society uh, has taken its toll. But nevertheless, even people who come from religious families of many, many generations standing, so whereas their father... Uh, did what his father did, the son today uh, is not necessarily bound by that. He's going to look it up in the book. The book many times does not coincide with the practice. And therefore, uh, it explains much of what goes on within the traditional Jewish world today and the changes that have existed People say, but I remember 50 years ago that we did this and this and this. Well, that's all true. But today's generation does not want to hear what you did 50 years ago. They want to see what's written in the book. They're following a different agenda. And therefore, to them, the study of Torah, the book defines the practice. Whereas in previous generations, the practice alone defined the practice. So the first idea, therefore, in the study of Torah is that Torah uh, tells us how to be Jewish. It gives us practical advice, instructions. It would be, uh, if, uh, you know, like if you buy a complicated uh, electronic device, uh, you hope that somehow it comes with instructions that are somewhat understandable. It always gives me pause when the instructions in English and the instructions in German differ. But you hope that you have somehow, you know, some instructions, right? What do you do? Where do you plug it in? So it would be impossible that the Durboni Shalom would grant us a Torah and hold us to this kind of standard of behavior, etc., without explaining to us what we're supposed to do. So therefore, the study of Torah becomes the instruction book tells us what to do. So that's a practical reason. You know, Jews don't like practical reasons. It doesn't, uh, doesn't stir our intellect or our emotions. So therefore, there's a second area that has nothing to do with practicality. The second area is that the study of Torah is the primary mitzvah of the Torah itself. 
having no practical effect and not meant to have any practical effect. The study of Torah itself is not a means. The first idea that I mentioned is that the study of Torah is a means. It's a means to the end of knowing what to do as a Jew. The second idea is that it is not the means, it's the end. That's it. Study of Torah, that's it. And uh, that's based on, uh, on the idea that the study of Torah supports the universe. I never would have made the heavens and the earth, God says, if it would not be for the fact that there's a Torah and people will study it. So without the study of Torah, the whole universe collapses. In the Lithuanian yeshivas, and it still exists today to a certain extent, in the Lithuanian yeshivas, therefore, they divided every day of the year into uh, a mishmar, into uh, shifts, eight-hour shifts or six-hour shifts, and so that in the yeshiva, Torah was constantly learned constantly studied so that the world would be supported so uh, my father told me that uh, many times uh, uh, you know they, uh, they had volunteers who, who wanted to do it Erev Yom Kippur and who wanted to do it Yom Kippur night the Gemara says on Rabbi Akiva that Rabbi Akiva's yeshiva never had a Benazmanim never had any vacation time but that only twice a year did Rabbi Akiva say, we're going to close the book and go home and get ready. One was Erev Yom Kippur and one was Erev Pesach. And the only two times during the year. So there was this idea of constant, constant study without any interruption whatsoever. And uh, in Valozhin, which was the mother of all yeshivas in Eastern Europe, so that was sacrosanct that the yeshiva always had people in the Beit HaMidrash studying Torah. And since uh, in those yeshivas uh, people didn't go home uh, for the holidays, etc., uh, many of them were so poor they could not go home, and many for other reasons did not go home, so there always was a critical mass of students in the yeshiva, year-round, 365 days a year, and therefore, Torah was constantly studied on the basis of this uh, of this idea. If it were not for my covenant, which is studied day and night, I never would have made the world, God says. The world can't exist without the constant study of Torah. Now, that uh, put, makes Torah, as I said, a... Uh, an end. The study of Torah is an end that's not a means to anything. Now you'll add to it that there's a higher concept that the Talmud brings to us. It's called Torah Lishma. Torah for the sake of studying Torah itself. So, uh, it's, you know, a person can study Torah because he wants to receive rabbinic ordination. A person can study Torah because he wants to uh, uh, make a good match, right? People are looking for uh, their daughter to have a, a Talmud Chochem, so he wants to do it. 
or he studies Torah because of all sorts of other reasons. But the rabbis emphasize... Well, again, we apologize that uh, in the midst of uh, some of the lectures we are presenting here, Bar by Barrel Wine, there seems to be some audio problems that we did not anticipate, and we apologize for that. Uh, the uh, lecture is entitled Torah Scholarship. It's from the Jewish Values series that Rabbi Wine uh, produced. And um, information, or if you'd like to hear it in its entirety and actually have it for your own collection, it's 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, um, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. It is a JM in the AM Wednesday morning broadcast at 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. On this August 10th, the sixth day in the month of Menachem Av, the year 5776, Tufshin Ayin Vav. Today is the sixth of the nine days, which this year is really ten days, since we observe Tisha B'Av on the 10th of Av this coming Saturday night. And Sunday, later on this morning, we'll have an opportunity to speak about Project Inspire and their plans for Tishabov. In addition to that, uh, we'll remind you about some of the things happening on Tishabov, including the Mincha prayer service going on at the Isaiah Peace Wall across from the United Nations this coming Sunday at 2 p.m. It is um, 78 degrees outside right now, but pretty warm. 78 degrees outside right now. 85% humidity winds are southwest at 4 miles per hour. Forecast for today, scattered thunderstorms with a high temperature of 84. Then tonight, thunderstorms early and a low of 77. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a high going up to 90 degrees. Right now, we're at 78 here in Jersey City, and apparently... A uh, thunderstorm is about to move into the area in the 7 o'clock hours. So be aware of that as you start your commute and hit the roads on this Wednesday. And I thank you for tuning in to JM in the AM. The, um, the news that seems to be dominating the news cycle is about the Olympics. And for those who are paying careful attention... To the Israeli team, and for those especially who did not think that there was much hope once the Olympics got underway, that the uh, Israeli team would have any representatives in the gold, silver, or bronze medal category. Well, yesterday was a uh, turn of events and some good news. Prime Minister Netanyahu has congratulated Yarden Gerbi. Yarden Gerbi on Wednesday morning won the bronze, actually he congratulated her Wednesday morning for the bronze medal win at the Rio Olympics on Tuesday. The women's under 63 kilo judo competition, Yarden Gerbi is the bronze medal winner. Congratulations, the Prime Minister said. You played it big time. We are all proud of you. You gave the whole country a wonderful feeling. Really, it is a great Achievement. You're an Olympian, he exclaimed, before taking the opportunity to extend his well wishes to the rest of the Israeli delegation in Rio and to express confidence that the team will bring more results. She thanked the Prime Minister for his, uh, for his blessings. She became the fourth Israeli uh, judo participant to take an Olympic medal, Yael Arad, back in 1992, a silver, which was uh, Israel's first medal. 
Oren Smadja a bronze in 92, and Arik Zevi a bronze in 2004. There have been four other medals in um, Olympic competition outside of judo from Israel. Uh, the only gold uh, coming at the uh, performance of Gal Friedman uh, back in Athens in 2004. So for those of you who are curious about Israel's performance at the Olympic Games, there is one gold to look back on. And now there is another bronze medal to look back on as uh, Yarden Gerbi becomes the uh, most recent victor of a medal at the Olympic Games. So congratulations, Mazal Tov. And um, one of the things I spoke about Friday when we began the weekly update was the the recognition that has to be given to the fact that uh, in the scope of history, just a few years later, so to speak, after the independence uh, declaration of the State of Israel, uh, Israel is part of the worldwide sports community and to a degree welcomed as one, looking at it in a very positive fashion. Um, and now we have to look at it and say, wow, could you imagine at this point, after starting this medal run back in the 90s, could you imagine that Israel is now on the receiving end, its athletes of eight medals, and uh, in this Olympics in 2016, a bronze medal in judo, the latest to be added to that collection. You look back at the context of Jewish history, especially in the uh, last few decades, and as uh, benign and mundane as it might seem to some, being it uh, a an accomplishment in the sports arena, in the big picture, it is certainly something to marvel at. Rabbi Beryl Wine has a series entitled Streets of Jerusalem, a walk through history as he literally takes you through a, uh, well, literally maybe the wrong word, as he takes you through a um, a walking tour, so to speak, of the different neighborhoods of Yerushalayim. And uh, for those of us who are somewhat familiar and those of us who are not familiar uh, with Jerusalem, we get an added explanation as to why these streets are named the way they are and uh, what we could learn from history just from the names of the streets that we walk on and ride on when we are in the holy city of Jerusalem. The first lecture deals with the neighborhoods of Rechavia and Shari Chesed in the heart of Jerusalem, and we present it to you here at JM in the AM. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Now, this lecture series, uh, which deals with the history of the streets of Jerusalem, is being dedicated in memory of two uh, matriarchs of their respective families by their grandchildren who live here in this neighborhood in Yerushalayim. Uh, both women uh, passed away this past year, 5761. Uh, Ruth Friedman, Rivka Batyakov, uh, grew up in America and lived in America and raised a family at a time when it was very difficult to remain an Orthodox Jew in the United States. But she accomplished the task, was very active in the community, worked for organizations, and raised her family to be Shomrei Torah and Mitzvot. And Rochel Basyakov, Rachel Erlbach, 
who escaped from the horrors of Germany and also came to America, she also was able to establish a Jewish home, and she was zochet to see three generations of her family, bonim of bonim, oskim batoru v'amitzvus, and therefore it is uh, an honor for us to dedicate this series in their memory. Uh, the land of Israel, as you may have noticed, is different than other countries in the world. Uh, in the United States, for instance, uh, streets are usually named uh, either numerically, 1st Avenue, 2nd Avenue, 54th Street, or uh, they are uh, named after physical, uh, geographical, topographical incidents uh, that they describe, uh, Broad Street, Wall Street, Mountain Avenue, High View. Uh, those are the typical, and then if you come to the new uh, richer suburbs, so then they're named after uh, relatives of the subcontractor who did the paving. Uh, and naturally, there are, in every uh, city in the United States, there's a Washington, there's a Jefferson, there's a Lincoln Street, etc. Uh, here in Israel, uh, very uh, few streets have anything to do with the geography or the topography of the neighborhood that they live in. You don't have a street uh, that's, uh, you know, Rehov Hahar. It uh, just uh, somehow doesn't fit. And most of the streets, therefore, are named after people or after events. Gedud uh, Alamed Hay, so the event of the 35 Haganah soldiers who attempted to uh, come to uh, Gush Etzion and were ambushed, uh, or they're named after the... Uh, members of uh, the fighting organizations or the army of Israel, uh, but very rarely do they have a geographical topographical name. Now, in the time of the temple, in the time of the Beis Amigdash, uh, just the opposite was true. Uh, we find almost none of the streets in Jerusalem were named after people, but rather they were named uh, the... Uh, street of the marketplace, uh, the street of uh, the cattle market. Uh, the, the one the main exception that we find is that in the temple itself, there was one gate that was named after a person, uh, Shar Nicanor. Nicanor was a uh, Jew from Alexandria, and therefore he had this Greek name. The Alexandrian Jews were uh, pretty much Hellenized, even though they were observant but uh, they were uh, modern Greek. And uh, the uh, uh, Nicanor uh, was a wealthy man, and he donated doors to the temple for the gate. And he had very expensive uh, doors that he donated. And the Talmud tells us that he placed the doors on a ship, and he, uh, it's... Uh, it seems from the story in the Talmud that he himself chartered the ship to bring the doors to the temple. And the ship got caught in a storm. And uh, as we read in the prophet Jonah, the sailors wanted to abandon the cargo, to jettison the cargo in order to make the ship lighter, to be able to withstand the waves. And they took one of the doors, this enormously heavy door, and they threw it overboard. And when they came to throw the second door overboard, 
And Nicanor was so overcome with emotion uh, that he said, if you're going to throw the door over, throw me too. He lay down on the door. And because they were afraid, uh, either that they would not get paid if they threw him overboard or other reasons, so they did not throw the door overboard. And somehow the storm abated. And when the boat came to dock at Jaffa, they found that under the keel of the boat, uh, that it was stuck to the boat was the door that they threw uh, overboard in the sea so that both doors were able to be brought to the temple and were installed and the rabbis the rabbis thought that this was miraculous and not only miraculous it was a symbol of the uh, a sacrifice of a Jew on behalf of the temple and perhaps uh, because he was an Alexandrian Jew, and Alexandria always saw itself uh, as a rival to Jerusalem. Alexandria had its own temple, its own base on Migdash. Uh, the Alexandrian Jews said, who needs Jerusalem? We're in good shape here in Alexandria. Uh, so uh, because of that, the rabbis called the gate Shar Nicanor, the gate of Nicanor. So that was a gate in the temple that had the name of a person. But otherwise, all the other gates, Sharamayim, Sharashpot, all were utilitarian names. One uh, was where they brought the water in, one was where they took out the garbage. Uh, you didn't have any uh, dramatic names. And when the Romans came, and the Greeks, and so then they uh, gave the streets their names, the Tyropian Way, uh, other uh, streets that were in Jerusalem, the Cardo, but there were no names after people. However, when the Jews came back 120 years ago, 130 years ago, 150 years ago here in Yerushalayim, uh, so then they began to name the streets after people. And tonight I want to discuss uh, our immediate neighborhood here, uh, the finest neighborhood in Jerusalem, Sharei uh, Chesed and Rechavia. Uh, these two neighborhoods that uh, now adjoin each other. So you have to imagine uh, Sharei Chesed sitting out in the middle of a field completely empty on all sides. Even the Wolfson buildings weren't there. <laughs> Nothing. Completely abandoned. And in 1903, uh, through the efforts of Jews in the exile, uh, this plot of land was purchased on behalf of the religious community because uh, the religious community then was uh, uh, by far the largest community and it was the community that did most of the building. And the, they moved out of the old city. The old city was very crowded and there was no room for expansion. And also the Arabs, uh, for a change, were not friendly. And so they began moving out in the 1860s. So you had the uh, Nevei Shananim, uh, Montefiore's project, you had Yamin Moshe, you had Nachlat Shiva. Nachlat Shiva was seven Haredi, uh, we would call them today Haredi, the Haredi Jews. Seven of them bought plots of land and began a neighborhood there. Uh, they, slowly they began moving outside the walls and the direction was always towards the west. In the 1880s, Meyer Shorim, uh, Bet Yisrael, 
uh, what today is Gula, those neighborhoods were founded. And uh, what happened was that uh, as the children of the people who lived in the old city married, I mean, the same thing that happens today. So today you buy in Ramat Beit Shemesh or you buy where you, know, you can't afford to live in Jerusalem. And uh, therefore the next generation begins new settlements. So that's what happened then. That's how Meishorim began and, uh, and it, that's how uh, all of these neighborhoods began. So in 1903, uh, they purchased Shari Chesed. It was a square, uh, uh, the measurements are Turkish measurements, so it's not metric and it's not English, so I can't really tell you how much it is. But what is interesting is that they subdivided it into 200 lots. But the architect who did it had a piece of paper that was only large enough for 139 lots. So they only built 139 lots because they didn't have a piece of paper large enough to include the other 61 lots, which today probably is worth money, but uh, it just shows the poverty of the time. In 1903, when the uh, dedication took place of Shari Chesed, the great Rabbi Shmuel Salant, who was then close to 100 years old, and who had not left his house for three years, insisted upon being carried to the dedication ceremony because of the importance that he felt that this neighborhood would have in the development of Yerushalayim, and because he came, so all of the other great Rabbonim of Yerushalayim, who many times did not attend affairs together, uh, all came across the entire spectrum, and the uh, neighborhood was dedicated. But the buildings didn't begin till 1908. And the, if you'll notice, Shari Chesed is built like a compound, a fort, a castle. They, uh, there were walls around it and gates. You can still see one of the gates on Rehov Shari Chesed. So Rehov Shari Chesed is one straight wall all the way down. Then there is Rehov Diskin in back, is a straight wall all the way around. And then you have Rehov Hagro, is a straight wall all around. These were walls, and the walls were there to protect them from Arab marauders. Because they were all out in this completely unprotected, uninhabited area. And they were subject, therefore, to any marauders that wanted to come. So in order to safeguard themselves, Shari Chesed was built almost as a walled city. Now today the walls are not as visible. Some of them have come down. And today we don't see it as walls. We just see it as attached houses. Uh, but if you'll, uh, next time you're on Diskin and you look at the back of Shari Chesed, you'll see what I mean, that it is built simply as a medieval fortress, as a medieval castle. Inside this castle, therefore, there were courtyards. There was not a system, it wasn't built that automobiles would someday have to go there. And you can see from the streets today that it is very difficult to navigate an automobile in Shari Chesed. The streets are extremely narrow. And part of being narrow, uh, there are two reasons. One reason is because it's a very hot climate and therefore the, uh, the fact that the street is narrow and the buildings impinge upon each other provides shade in the summer. And the second reason is simply because of the fact that they wanted to conserve space. 
and they were accustomed uh, to the Middle Eastern style of uh, narrow streets, which exist in all the major cities of the Middle East. And also, they came from the shtetl in Europe, which also was not famous for its boulevards or parks or anything else. And so that was their mindset when they built here in 1908. Let me read to you, uh, so the, the, uh, the original, uh, the right to build uh, came with a protocol. And you had to sign the protocol, and in the event that you violated the protocol, the uh, committee that uh, organized Shari Chesed had the right to take your home away from you. And among uh, the committee, Rabbi Naftali Porush was one of them. That's why Rachel Porush exists uh, in, uh, in Shari Chesed. Other great Rabbonim, it was mainly uh, uh, rabbinically uh, founded. So uh, I have here a copy of the... Uh, statement that you have to sign. I don't want to read all of it to you, but I just want to read a few salient points. Number one, the person pledges uh, that uh, in no violation of the Sabbath will occur, not publicly nor privately. And he takes upon himself the responsibility for his family and for his guests. And number two, that no one will shave their beard. Number three, that no one will go without a hat or a head covering in the street. Uh, number four, discusses that the women will dress modestly. So you have here this protocol which really implanted itself on the neighborhood. Because if, the, if you have to sign this kind of a protocol, uh, then it automatically excluded uh, those that did not want to observe this type of lifestyle. And so Shari Chesed uh, was founded uh, for uh, this group of people. And uh, it was, um, money was collected from all over the exile for Shari Chesed because most of the people who moved in were very, very poor. They were Talmud HaChachomim, they were scholars, but they were very poor. They couldn't even afford the minimum rent uh, that was involved in having an apartment there. And therefore, uh, Shari Chesed began as a Gmilas Chesed. And the name of the organization was Gmilas Chesed Shari Chesed. Because what they did is they loaned you the money every month that you paid the rent back to them. Now, how that works economically, I don't know, but, but it's been only works as long as you're getting money from outside the land of Israel to finance the thing. But that's how the neighborhood began. And that's how the neighborhood took on its character. One of the nice things that they say about Shari Chesed is that it's may assure him with a smile. Uh, it always had a, uh, a, uh, a great number of uh, elegant Talmud Chachomim who lived there. The Rabbonim have always been superior Rabbonim. And it therefore implanted itself uh, with a uh, stamp, with a character uh, that has lasted until today. The main synagogue is the Beit Knesset Hagra, which still exists today. It's, that's the original building. Uh, I'll give you an example of how low they are to change it. Uh, the, a number of years ago, they wanted to repave the floor in the, when you come into the Hagra. So there's a room on the right hand uh, where uh, uh, the minion is at 7.15 in the morning. And then there's a room on the left hand, and then there's a room upstairs. So they repaved all the floors. But the room on the right hand 
where Reb Shlomo Zalman Oyerbach prayed, uh, where the Magid Rabbi Shvadron had prayed, uh, where uh, <coughs> where uh, Rabbi Rosenthal was the Rav, etc. With the old Sharech, they refused to repave the floor. They said, this is a holy floor because such holy people walked on the floor. So what if it's up and down, bumpy, you can't clean it, you know what? How does that come into consideration in comparison to the holiness of people who trod upon this floor? So therefore, if, if you want to, you go into the Beknesset Agra on the right side and you'll see the original floor that was built in 1908. It's almost a century old now. Uh, there are discussions in the minutes uh, regarding lectre, which means electricity, because originally it was all candlelight and kerosene lamps, and whether that was considered too modern. If you go into Shari Chesed today, they still have the Turkish clock uh, in, the, uh, in the place where you daven, even though nobody can figure out Turkish time anymore. But they still have the Turkish clock, and uh, so, you know, the 7.15 minion meets at 19 after 9 on the clock. So how that works, but that's, but that's an example of uh, their loyalty to how the neighborhood was established and for the purposes which it was established. So in the public buildings were the Bet Knesset Hagra, there was a Talmud Torah, which uh, existed in what is today the Kahal Hasidim, uh, the mikveh, which is to say the same original mikveh, though it's been redone a number of times, and uh, there was a matzah bakery, and that's it. And uh, naturally they had a makolet, and they had a, uh, a, a laundry, all of which is pretty much in the same area where these establishments are located today. Now, when it came to name the streets in Shari Chesed, so first of all, there weren't many streets because most of the streets are alleys. It's a courtyard type of arrangement. But nevertheless, they, uh, when, the, uh, when the British came in the 1920s, so the British insisted that every place has to have a name. It has to be, uh, you know, properly done. So the, uh, and the system that the British used was that the uh, committee that was in charge of the neighborhood, all the Jewish neighborhoods were run by local committees. And though the committee chose the names, later the Iria would choose the names, but uh, that's the way the British did it, and so the Arab neighborhoods had naturally Arab names, the Jewish neighborhood had Jewish names, and the British neighborhoods where the British controlled had British names. So for instance, if you go down towards uh, Baca, uh, the, uh, by the Anglican Church, so you have all Patterson, Lloyd George, uh, those are the names because that, that was the British, that's where the British officers lived. But uh, in Shari Chesed, they wouldn't name it Patterson or Lloyd George. So we have uh, the, uh, the Hagrashul is on the Rehov Beit Knesset, the street of the synagogue. Uh, but then there is Rehov Hagra, the named after the Gon of Vilna, because the founders of Shari Chesed were all Prushim. They all were descendants of the Lithuanian Jews, the students and disciples of the Gon of Vilna, who had come at the beginning of the 19th century. And the customs of the Gon of Vilna, till today, uh, exist in Shari Chesed. And because they exist in Shari Chesed, 
they spilled over into Rechavi also. So, for instance, our synagogue here, the Knesset Hanasi, uh, which has a mixture of people who founded it, nevertheless follows in the main the customs of the Gaon of Vilna regarding the Nusach what you say, what you don't say, etc., because of the fact that it is located in proximity to Sharei Chesed, which is completely under the influence of the Gaon of Vilna and uh, his descendants. We have Rechov Porush, named after Naftali Porush, who was the, one of the founders of Sharei Chesed. But you have, uh, you have also uh, Street uh, Kahanov, uh, that was named after Reb Moshe Nechemya Kahanov, who was the Rosh Yeshiva in Eitz Chaim Yeshiva here in Yerushalayim from 1867 to 1886. And uh, so th that street is named after Rosh Yeshiva. And the main street in the back, Diskin. So there are two Diskins that are famous in Yerushalayim, a father and a son. The first one is Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin, uh, who the street is really named for. Uh, though there is a square off the street uh, that in Israel, that's how they do it. And when they run out of streets, so then they make the intersection, they call it a square, and they're able to put up another name. So his son was Reb Yitzchak Yeruchim Diskin. Now, Reb Yeshua Leib Diskin was the Brisker Rov. He was the Rov in Brisk after the Beis HaLevi. He was the Rov in Brisk uh, before Reb Chaim Brisker, before Reb Chaim Salavetche came to Brisk. Uh, he was a very, very great genius, a great Talmud Chochem, and he was a very strong-willed person who was always involved in controversy. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a fighter. Uh, he fought against the Haskalah, he fought against uh, what he felt was the breakdown of Jewish tradition, uh, he, and he refused to compromise. And therefore, in his community, uh, in Brisk, there was a large element that uh, no longer found him favorable to be the Rav. And uh, he had a Rebetzin that was uh, his match. They even say that she was more than he was. One of my, uh, if I ever get the nerve to do it, I'm going to do a series on Rebetzins. <laughs> Beginning with. Uh, so, uh, uh, <clears throat> so they had uh, they had great enmity in Brisk, and uh, they were uh, their enemies finally uh, informed against them on uh, essentially trumped up charges to the Russian government, and the Russian government came to arrest them, and they left about 15 minutes before the police came, and they fled from Brisk uh, without any uh, money or uh, goods, etc. But then he said, as long as we're leaving Brisk, we're going to go to Yerushalayim, right? I mean, there's no reason to stay in Russia. And he came to, uh, er, to here to Yerushalayim, where he was a very, very important and influential figure. And here also he was a person of controversy, uh, but his because of his greatness and because of the fact that the uh, other uh, Rabbonim here in Yerushalayim uh, were uh, much more passive people than he was and therefore they uh, uh, so to speak got out of his way he had a far greater influence 
than would have been predicted uh, simply on the basis of uh, a new person comes and especially to Yerushalayim, uh, Shmuel Salant is the Rav, you got all the great Gaonim sitting here, and, uh, but Rabbi Shualayim, more than anyone else, put his imprint on the, the community of Sharei Chesed and Meir Shorim and Gula, and till today, many of the, uh, many of the ideas that he promulgated, uh, no compromise regarding Jewish education, no change in the old system of the Cheder, uh, and not allowing uh, any sort of secular studies in Jewish schools in Jerusalem, etc. Uh, he was the one who fought all of those battles, and so even today, uh, almost a hundred years later, uh, those ideas have great currency and have strong influence here in Jerusalem. So that was the father. The son of Yitzhak Yeruchim Diskin was even more than the father. And he is the one uh, uh, who uh, led the battle, so to speak, against uh, Rav Cook and against the ideas uh, uh, in the, uh, of the Yishuv HaChodosh, of the new uh, Yishuv that was then coming there at Israel. And uh, so Rechov uh, Diskin, as I was saying, you know, God has ironies. In God's world, always is ironies. So I always thought to myself, most people don't realize the irony, but uh, that uh, the, four, the five Wolfson buildings, etc., should be built on Rechov Diskin uh, has an ironic twist to it, because uh, he would not have been happy to see those buildings, uh, and he uh, certainly would not shop in the co-op. <laughs> so that's the father and the son. And that's Rechov Diskin. Uh, Rechov Diskin originally was a small, narrow street. Uh, it's been improved since the Wilson buildings were built. It was made a through street to lead out to uh, the boulevard of Ben Tzvi. But on the other side, it's still a dead end. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and uh, it is the back street, the Sharei Chesed. It provides the protection for the wall uh, that encloses Sharei Chesed. So now let's move to us to Rechavia, which is also a very interesting story. First of all, why is it called Rechavia? Rechavia is mentioned in Tanakh in only one place, in Divrei Ayomim, which all of us know by heart. So in Divrei Ayomim, the Tanakh records for us the genealogy of Moshe Rabbeinu, who were his children, who were his grandchildren, etc., so Moshe had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. So Gershom had a son that uh, eventually became a priest for paganism, Moshe Rabbeinu's grandson, uh, which the Tanakh tells us so that we should always realize uh, that uh, nobody has any contracts, nobody has any guarantees, that everything can happen and everything does happen. But that doesn't diminish Moshe, and uh, Moshe Rabbeinu is still Moshe Rabbeinu. The second son, Eliezer, so it says in Divrei Ayomim, in Perik Chov Gimel, Posig Yud Zayin, Vayiyu b'nei Eliezer, the descendants of Eliezer, Rechavia Horosh. The first one was Rechavia. So the Medrash says it was the only son that he had. 
the Posik says, He did not have other, so Boni Macherim can mean other children, or it can mean other sons. The Medrash said that he was blessed with seven daughters. He had one son, Rechavia, and he had seven daughters. So what happened was that the architect that laid out Rechavia had seven daughters, and he wanted to have a son. So as a zgula, as a, as a charm that he would have a son, he named the neighborhood that he was hired to lay out Rechavia. So you didn't know that you lived in such a neighborhood. I have not been able to determine whether he actually ever had a son or not. But that is why the neighborhood is called Rechavia, because of this posig in Shira, in the posig in Divrei Ayomim, uh, where uh, Moshe's grandson was called Rechavia. So our neighborhood is named after Moshe Rabbeinu's immediate grandson. This is the end of side one. J.M. and the A.M. halfway through a lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine regarding the streets of Jerusalem, in this case the neighborhood of Rechavia and Shari Chesed. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. Two minutes before 8 o'clock, actually two minutes before 7 o'clock on this Wednesday morning broadcast at J.M. and the A.M. I welcome those of you tuned in around the world on the NSN app, on your computers, etc., etc., it is Wednesday on this August 10th, the sixth day in the month of Menachem Av, the year 5776. We're in our nine days format as we lead up to the observance of Tisha B'Av, which this year will be on the 10th of Av, Saturday night and Sunday upcoming. 78 degrees outside with 85% humidity, wind southwest at 4 miles per hour. Scattered thunderstorms and a high temperature of 84. Thunderstorms early tonight, a low of 77, and tomorrow mostly cloudy, a high temperature of 90 degrees. Yerushalayim is at 87, a lot at 99. Up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Misora at 69 degrees, going up to 80 with thunderstorms. We're at 78 here in Jersey City as we say good morning here at JM in the AM. Well, the uh, world and the country seems to be talking about the Olympics, as are we, but likely a different country that everyone else is concentrating on at this moment. Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel congratulated Yardane Gerby on Wednesday for her bronze medal win at the Rio Olympics Tuesday in the women's under-63-kilo judo competition. Congratulations, Netanyahu said. You played it big time. We are all proud of you. You gave the whole country a wonderful feeling. It's an, a great achievement. You're an Olympian, he exclaimed, before taking the opportunity to extend his well wishes to the rest of the Israeli delegation in Rio and to express confidence that the team will bring more results. Gerby thanked the Prime Minister for his blessing. She became the fourth Israeli judo athlete to take an Olympic medal, joining Yael Arad, Oren Smadja, Arik Zevi. And the four other medals came courtesy of uh, other sports and other athletes from Israel. The only gold, the lone gold medal, we should say, in Israel's history, Gal Friedman at the 2004 Athens Olympics. Gerby becomes the second Israeli woman to win a medal, joining Yael Arad. So Yael Arad was first in terms of uh, medals. And... Um, Gal Friedman was first in terms of gold medals, and the most recent addition to the Israeli medal category uh, comes at the uh, hands, literally, of uh, judo expert Yardane Gerby, 
Mazal Tov. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Galitzal in the background, our news from Israel is coming up. I would guess that their uh, metal placement will be in the news at some point, although it did happen yesterday, so maybe it's already added a news cycle the way these things work. We are going to be speaking, please God, in the 8 o'clock hour with the sports rabbi, Rabbi Josh Halleckman. Nobody follows Israeli sports like he does, and he'll join us with comments regarding this amazing achievement as Israel continues to uh, to play a real role in the international sports community, in this case with their most recent bronze medal. Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Wednesday follows next. We say Boker Tov from Jam and the Am. כללית ימשיכו במערכת הביטחון מעריכים כי זהו עוד ניסיון להצטייד באמצעי תקיפה לצורך פגיעה במטרות ישראליות. פרשת הסלמונלה בקורנפלקס בחברת לוגיסטר המעסיקה את העובד שעליו נטען בדוח החקירה כי התרשל בסימון האריזות אומרים הבודקים חיפשו שינגימל להאשים אותו כתבתנו אלונה בלקין הדוח חובבני וחסר אחריות הוא בוחר להטיל את האשמה על מחסנאי תוך שימוש בהשערות וסברות שאין להן ביסוס במציאות כך נכתב בתגובה של החברה מוקדם יותר פורסם דוח החקירה של חברת יוניליבר שהפנה אצבע מאשימה כלפי אחד מעובדי המחסן שלטענתם החליף בין פרטי הזיהוי שעל האריזות מסר הלוויה של הרב אריה פינקל שהלך הבוקר לעולמו יצא בעוד זמן קצר מבניין ישיבת מיר ברכפלד שבמודיעין עילית לכיוון ירושלים הרב פינקל היה ראש הישיבה וחבר מועצת גדולי התורה של מפלגת דגל התורה הוא התאמן בער מנוחות בבירה ואלפים צפויים ללוות אותו בדרכו האחרונה כתבנו אריאל זיגלר אחרי בשעה ארבע וחצי יחסמו לתנועה רחובות רבים במסלול מסע הלוויה, בין היתר כיכר השבת, מלכי ישראל, שמגר, ירמיהו והכניסה להר המנוחות. המגיעים לירושלים מכיוון כביש אחת יופנו לכיוון מנהרת הארזים. המשטרה ממליצה לנהגים להיכנס ולצאת מהבירה דרך כביש ארבע ארבע שלוש ודרך מנהרת הארזים. 
מנכ"לית משרד המשפטים אימי פלמור מגנה את פרסום הודעת הדרושים של חברת האופנה אקספוז בנכתב כי היא לא רוצה עובדות אתיופיות, כתובתנו דור מימון. פלמור העומדת בראש הוועדה למיגור גזענות נגד יוצאי אתיופיה כתבה בתגובה אם אלה אכן העובדות מדובר לכאורה במקרה בוטה של אפליה גזענית. ידוע לי שאין זה המקרה הראשון ובוודאי לא היחיד. עוד הוסיפה פלמור שהמקרה הועבר לטיפול נציבות שוויון הזדמנויות בעבודה. מזג האוויר, מעונן חלקית עד נאה, מחר ירידה קלה בטמפרטורות, בעיקר בערים. אלה החדשות שעורכת חן רביב. J.M. and the A.M. at 5 minutes after 7 o'clock. Good morning and thanks for tuning in to 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org, and of course on the uh, NSN app. Uh, let's try and conclude this lecture by Beryl Wine uh, on the streets of Jerusalem, speaking about the neighborhood of Shari Chesed and Rechavia. And all that we could learn from the names of the streets in these Jerusalem neighborhoods. Later on, we'll speak about Project Inspire. Josh Halleckman, the sports rabbi, will join us from Israel. Plenty more coming up between now and 9 o'clock. It is a nine days format here at JM in the AM as we continue with Rabbi Beryl Wine. Kachavi was founded in 1921. Uh, it was uh, 8,400. Uh, 8,400 square meters originally, which is not a lot. And it was bought by uh, the organization called Hachsharat HaYishuv. Hachsharat HaYishuv was a Zionist organization, like Karen Kayemet, uh, like other Zionist organizations, that was in the business of purchasing land from the non-Jewish owners. In the... Now, most of Jerusalem was owned by the churches. And uh, even today, uh, 40% of the city sits on land still owned by the churches on which long-term leases were negotiated. For instance, the Knesset uh, is sitting on church land, so they have a 99-year lease. And uh, I would imagine that when the 99 years are up, uh, the rent will go up. Uh, uh, I think that's a pretty safe bet. Uh, this entire area all around here is basically church land. So Rechavia, the first 8,400 square meters, uh, was purchased by Hachsharat HaYishuv from the Greek Orthodox Patriarch in 1921. Now, all the purchases uh, of, that were made by the Jews were always uh, tainted with the accusation of corruption. Uh, in other words, they paid off the patriarch in order to be able to buy it and give uh, and, uh, and, and that the church would sell it to them. And uh, there's a whole scandal going on now. And now there's a new patriarch. I saw an, an interview in the newspaper with him today, which he says he's not anti-Israel. He just wants more rent. And uh, so that, that's understandable. So this Hachsharat HaYishuv, bought uh, this piece, which is on a, uh, <clears throat> until the border of Karen Kayemet Street. In other words, where we are. Then, in 1923, two years later, the Karen Kayemet bought the other piece, which is Karen Kayemet Boulevard, down to King George, and that corner where the Jewish agency 
and the uh, Karen Kayemet offices are. That was purchased in 1923, and that was also purchased from the Greek patriarch, and that was bought with the specific idea that the government buildings, the, uh, the yeshuv, the central organizations, uh, would build their offices on that land. So therefore, this boulevard is called Karen Kayemet Le Yisrael Boulevard, it's simply because the Karen Kayemet bought it. And it ran down to King George. Now, what was doing with King George? The English naturally named it for King George V. And the English, uh, the British, made that the main street in Jerusalem. And they made Jaffa and King George to be uh, the, uh, the uh, commercial center, uh, the shopping center, uh, Ben Yehuda Street. And all of that was done under Sir Ronald Storrs who was the British High Commissioner after Sir Herbert Samuel. And that was meant to be the main street of Jerusalem. And therefore, they named it after King George V. Now, it's also obvious that they did not imagine the automobile traffic that ever would exist in Jerusalem. Because it was open space. You could have made a wide street. They thought they made an enormously wide street, because if you compare it to the streets in Shari Chesed, this is just a tremendously wide street. But if you compare it to what type of street is necessary today, where you would have to have a minimum of four lanes of traffic, if not six lanes of traffic, and here you have, uh, in the exquisite Israeli invention, two and a half lanes... Uh, so then you, you have this very narrow uh, street, uh, which is the main street of Jerusalem, and to a great extent remains today as uh, certainly the main street of Jerusalem. There was an architect by the name of Richard Kaufman, a Jewish architect who found favor in the eyes of the British as well, and he came up with a master plan for building Jerusalem, and he called it Ir Ganim, the city of gardens. He wanted to make Jerusalem a garden city. So they passed a law that no building could be higher than four stories. And they passed a law that all the buildings had to be covered with Jerusalem stone. And they passed laws regarding setbacks. Uh, Shari Chesed, for instance, is built to the street uh, because there was no recess. But they passed zoning laws that the, the buildings had to be recessed. And he is the architect not only for Rechavia, but for Bayit Vagan, uh, for Beit HaKerem, uh, for a number of other uh, uh, famous neighborhoods here. And, uh, he, <coughs> and uh, Kiryat Moshe, Shoshana Tzion, Yefeinov, all of these neighborhoods were designed by the same man, by Richard Kaufman. And his idea was that they would build single houses or at the most two-story houses, and every house would have its own garden in front, and it would be recessed off the street, and that Rechavia would be a, uh, a showplace for Jerusalem. It would be uh, the, uh, the example of what the, uh, the beauty of Jerusalem. That was his idea, and because that was his idea, uh, the... Uh, leaders of the Jewish community and the wealthier class immediately purchased lots in Rechavia uh, to be able to move in. And since it was also in close proximity 
to the buildings of the Jewish agency and the uh, Karen Kayemet. So it became uh, the place where uh, such aristocratic people as us live. And uh, today it's where the president of the state of Israel has his home, and it's where the prime minister's official residence is. It retains that character, and uh, there are cabinet ministers that live in our area, uh, because of the fact that uh, that was the original intent as to uh, how uh, it would be built. Now, uh, I have the original map here of Rechavia, which uh, he drew, and there became a question, what should the streets be named? What should the streets be named? So it's very interesting. We're on Rechavah Sishkin. Rechavah Sishkin really stands out, and it doesn't belong because all the other names of the streets in Rechavia are names of great Spanish Jews from the golden age of Spain. Poets, Talmide Chachomim, Rabonim, Geonim, but Usishkin, but the reason that Usishkin is here is because of Karen Kayemet Boulevard. Karen Kayemet Boulevard uh, was uh, purchased, as I mentioned, by the Karen Kayemet, and Usishkin was the president of the Karen Kayemet. <laughs> and therefore, uh, you see, you always had also a problem, which, you know, we in Rechavia, for instance, I mean, in our neighborhood, more or less, they pick up the garbage. And uh, once in a while, they pave the street. And, you know, you get city services uh, much better than you do in other neighborhoods in the city. And if they wanted to have the streets paved, and the Karen Kayemet was paving Karen Kayemet, so they wanted to have the other streets paved also. So as an inducement, the Usishkin was called Usishkin. And uh, it helped. It's, uh, it, the, the neighborhood developed. Now, where did they get their water from and their electricity? came from the Radisbone Monastery, which today is the uh, Lev Rechavia what, uh, in, uh, on Karen Kayemet Boulevard. So that entire area is still owned by the Radisbone. It's a French church. Uh, the monastery itself has only three or four people living in it. But they own this a tremendous amount of property. And they, uh, in fact, that new uh, apartment building that was built is all leased. It's built on a lease from the uh, church, for which the church gets a ground fee every year uh, of substantial money. So... Uh, uh, the Radisbone Monastery had water, they had an independent water system, so they, Rechavia drew its water originally from the monastery, and it drew its electricity from the monastery because they had generators. Eventually, uh, a citywide system of both water and electricity was set up, which naturally inclu included Rechavia. Now let's uh, take a walk down uh, Ramban Street. Uh, why was the main street called Ramban when it could have been called uh, something else? Uh, for instance, uh, Ben Maimon Boulevard originally was called Rambam. But because of the confusion uh, to the taxi drivers between Rambam and Ramban, so they changed the name to Ben Maimon. So they could have had the main street could have been Rambam, and the side street could have been Ben Nachman, right? They could have done it that way. Why did they choose Ramban as the name? The reason is because the Ramban came to Israel in 1267. 
and the Ramban is the one that built the shul in the old city, and he came to the city of Jerusalem when there was no minion here, he couldn't find ten Jews, he went to Shem and he got Jews, he went to Hebron and he got Jews, so the Ramban is one of the original builders of the Jewish community in Israel 700 and some years ago, and he died here and is buried here, we don't know where his burial place is. The Rambam, on the other hand, came and visited the land of Israel for six months. When he came from North Africa, he came to Akko. He came to Syria first, and then he came to Akko. Then he came to Tiberias. He was only here six months. And for various reasons that his son writes in a long letter, he decided that to settle in the land of Israel. And he continued uh, to Egypt, where he was the head of the Jewish community in Egypt, in Cairo, and Fostad. So therefore, they gave the main street to the Ramban, and they gave uh, the side street, so to speak, to the Rambam. But they wanted to make, they wanted to honor the Rambam. There's a lot of terror in all of this. They wanted to honor him. You're not the Rambam's going to have the same street like everybody else is going to have. So they made it a boulevard. It's the only boulevard in the neighborhood, and that's in honor of... The Rambam. Now, originally the street ended where the boulevard ended, on Alfasi, Ibn Ezra. But then the street kept on building all the way down to, uh, uh, to where it is today, uh, to where it comes down almost to Mitadella, all the way down. But originally that was it, and it was the, the fact that it had a boulevard and that it had two uh, one-way streets, you know, going opposite to it, so it had its own importance a greater importance. That's, of course, before I moved on the street, but, but that was the re so, so the main street was Ramban. Now, if you walk on Ramban between Evan Ezra and Ibn Gabiro, on the side of the street towards Shari Chesed, you come to a little park. Uh, it's got a big frog there. Uh, and uh, that, that park originally was a tennis court. It was set aside by Kaufman, uh, that uh, because the British played tennis, and uh, this was for the fancy Jews, so in Shari Chesed, tennis wasn't going to go too far. <laughs> but here in Rechavia, how could you have, uh, you know, a neighborhood, a garden neighborhood, uh, you have to have the British mindset of the 1920s uh, without having a tennis court. So that originally was a tennis court. Uh, for various reasons, it didn't go in Rechavia either, until Ellie moved here. But un until then, it didn't, nothing happened. And so because of that, uh, eventually it became a park, and it's what it is today, a park for children, a playground. Uh, now, if you'll notice, in Rechavia, there are certain names that we would have thought would be present and are not here. The name that immediately struck me from the beginning is Rabbi Yudah Alevi. If you have the names of all the poets, for instance, we have the name of Al-Kharizi, of Shlomo Al-Kharizi. Al-Kharizi was the translator of the Pirish HaMishnayas of the Rambam from Arabic into Hebrew. The Rambam wrote it in Arabic, and Al-Kharizi translated it into Hebrew. Al-Kharizi was a poet. We have piyutim from him, but Al-Kharizi is not Rabbi Yudah by the way, we have in Sharei Chesed the street of Elozer HaKalir, which is also the, the great poet and python of the Jewish world. 
difference of opinion whether he lived at the time of the Talmud or he lived later to the 8th century. Tosa seems to think that he lived at the time of the Talmud. The others say that he lived much later. But, uh, for instance, the first 26 kinos that we have, that we say on Tisha B'Av are from Elozer HaKalir, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the piyut that we say is from Elozer HaKalir, they say to Ravoda, uh, he is the most prolific of all of the Jewish poets, liturgical poets. But Rabbi Yudah Alevi is the poet of the people. So originally there was a street called Rabbi Yudah Alevi, but it doesn't exist anymore. The street ran from the tennis court up to Karen Kayemet. Today it's that small little alleyway that leads you uh, past the uh, Mahon Ben Tzvi, up the stairs. And the reason that they have to give up the street is because on paper it looks perfect. But when you look at the topography of that hill, uh, they knew that, uh, that uh, it would not be negotiable, not by horses and not by automobiles, because the grade is so st steep. And therefore, they would have to regrade the entire hill. And by then, they had run out of money completely. And because of that, therefore, there is no Rebut Alevi Street. But if you walk that, uh, you know, if you take that shortcut from Ramban up to Karen Kayemet to the post office, uh, you're walking on what should have been the street uh, of Rebuto Alevi. There's a street here called Haran. That's not its original name. Also, funny story. The original name of the street was Aharon. And it was named after a man who insisted... Uh, that would be named after him. And after all sorts of bitter quarrels, uh, they dropped the olive. So it became Haran. And everybody says, well, it fits in perfectly because the Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim ben Ruvain, even Gerondi, who came from Girona in Spain, uh, fits in with all of the other Spaniards here. Part of it, but that's, that, wasn't, that wasn't their intention at all. They didn't mean that Ran at all. Now, another reason why, there was a great rov in Shari Chesed, Reb David Baharan, Beis Hei Reish Nun, and they wanted to name the street after him too. So therefore, Haran uh, includes uh, Baharan in it also. But uh, I'm sure that most of the people who live there are completely unaware of uh, the history of what happened there. What happened is also that, Shari, uh, that Rechavia was built piecemeal. It was built from 1923 until 1930, and then it was built again from 30 to 35, and then it was built again from 38 to the beginning of the war. Now, the southern part of Rechavia, which deals with all of the Apokorsim, with all of the uh, Haskola people, Brenner, uh, <coughs> Smolenskin, Achadam, Sokolov, Pinsker, Sholem Aleichem, Moshe Haas, that neighborhood was called Merchavia, which doesn't mean more Rechavia, it means Merchavia, it's also a, a, a word that appears in Tanakh, and that was founded in 1938, so that part is much newer than the part here in Rechavia, and that part uh, was named the uh, they, they, he had that, the names there were chosen to counteract Sharei Chesed and Rechavia, because Sharei Chesed and Rechavia were all, you know, uh, 
what shall we say, they were uh, the forces of darkness, right? They, they didn't get it. And the, 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 uh, the secular, because in Israel the struggle is in everything. There is nothing that is removed uh, from the politics and from the agendas and from the struggles that exist within the Jews. So they wanted to show uh, that uh, the, the greatness of the Haskola and of their people, and therefore the names of those streets are all names of Haskola writers. There was a great debate whether to name a street after Chernichovsky. Saul Chernichovsky, because he married a non-Jewish woman, and because of his uh, open espousal of, pe of paganism in his poetry. And so therefore what they did is they moved Chernichovsky away from Shari Chesed, and oh, this, this, so this is all true, they moved him away from Shari Chesed and from Rechavia, uh, so that it would not be, uh, in other words, uh, we could tolerate uh, Achad Ahom or, uh, or even Brenner maybe, but, uh, but Chernichovsky was too much, so they pushed him on the other side of Rehov and they, he's out of the neighborhood completely. Now, uh, the uh, streets uh, that surrounded Rehavia uh, went from Karen Kayemet to Aza. And then the other side of Azo was Merchavia. And then Talbia, as we know it today, was all Arab until 1948. It was an Arab village. Very few Jews lived there. And in fact, uh, you have the famous uh, uh, lie of Edward Said, the uh, Palestinian professor at Columbia University. So he always, <coughs> he always writes... <clears throat> that he was born in Jerusalem and that his parents owned a home 10 Rehov Brenner across from the academy house and that he's waiting, he's got the key to the house, he's waiting to come back. And so he was exposed a number of years ago that he never was born in, in the land of Israel, he was born in Egypt and that the house was owned by uh, an uncle of his and that Martin Buber rented the, uh, the house from his uncle, and that the house eventually was bought from his uncle, and, uh, but that part already was Arab. Was owned, basically was already Arab territory. And therefore, uh, Rehavia was very, very self-contained. The main street in Rehavia was considered uh, a Barbanel, Don Yitzhak a Barbanel, because it was a street that cut through uh, to... Uh, even Shaprut, and even Shaprut was the gateway to go to Shari Chesed, and it cut through on the other side to Al-Kharizi, which was the way to get to Ramban. So it was like a through street, even though it curves. And the Barbanel is naturally named after the great Don Yitzhak Barbanel, uh, the minister of Spain, uh, the great Meforish of the Tanakh, and uh, one of the great Jewish heroes uh, that existed in uh, that period of time. Ibn Gabirol is one of the great Jewish poem, poets, Rehov Ibn Gabirol. Uh, you'll notice that on Rehov Ibn Gabirol there is a synagogue called Chorev, and in front of the Chorev synagogue there is a poem of Ibn Gabirol, of Shlomo Ibn Gabirol, about 
uh, how he searches for God. In the morning, I search for you, um, God of my strength, etc. So, Im Gabiro is uh, one of the great, Shlomo Im Gabiro is one of the uh, great Hebrew poets. Uh, the Svardim, he wrote a poem called Keter Melucha, which has 199 stanzas to it. Uh, about the, the glory of God. And the Svardim recite that poem, Kol Nidre Night. The entire poem. And I have met people who know the poem by heart. They teach their children to know that poem by heart. Uh, he is one of the great poets of the Svardic world. Now, again, what happened today is... Jam in the AM. We will continue and conclude by Wine's lecture on the uh, streets of Jerusalem, in this case, Rechavia and Shari Chesed, coming up here on a Wednesday morning broadcast. Um, we have Rabbi Goldwasser coming up in just a moment. 78 degrees with 85% humidity, winds of southwest at 4 miles per hour, scattered thunderstorms in a high of 84. It's Wednesday, day 6 of our 9 days format. Uh, actually, this year, 10 days, as we keep emphasizing, because uh, Tisha B'Av is being observed Saturday night and Sunday, which is the 10th of Av. Reminder, Sunday at 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Peace Wall, 43rd Street and 1st Avenue in uh, New York City. Uh, Mincha service sponsored by Amcha across from the United Nations. In honor of our brothers and sisters in Israel and Jews who are in danger around the world. Uh, that's happening Sunday, starting at 2 p.m. Bring your towels and tefillin. Uh, Matis will have a JM Sunday on Tisha B'Av morning starting at 7 a.m. Tomorrow we'll explore the uh, OU's contribution to Tisha B'Av for this year. As both Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib will be uh, conducting uh, kinna services in uh, different parts of the world, Israel and Florida. And uh, later on we'll speak about Project Inspire and their plans for Tisha B'Av. And um, oh, also because of the... Uh, Amazing day that Israel had at the Olympics yesterday. The sports rabbi, Rabbi Josh Halakman, will join us from Israel coming up in the 8 o'clock hour this morning as well. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Yechanish Basar of Zeb and Yosef Alevi, Nestor Basar of Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We read on Tishabov the kin of Arzehavanon. It speaks about those that were Mekadesh Shem Hashem, that gave up their lives, Al Kiddush Hashem. Certainly over the generations, there have been many from the communities around the world that were willing to give up their lives, Al-Kiddush Hashem. Sulika Chagral lived in Tangier and was especially beautiful. When she was 14 years old, she was in the courtyard of a girl who was a neighbor, one who belonged to the nations. She met some other young non-Jewish girls. When the girl's father saw her, he became very interested in her. He told her he wanted to marry her and promised her silver and gold. Of course, Sulika, she was at Sadekes, she refused. The person then locked the gate of the courtyard so she could not escape. He then spread a rumor throughout the city that Sulika had converted to Islam and was going to marry him. Sulika denied the accusation and eventually she was taken to court. The Jewish kahila was up in arms, but no one could save her. Although the court understood that she had been wronged, they were afraid of the Muslim reprisals, and they referred the case to the king in Fez. The king, 
had expert people to try to convince her that she should convert. However, she stood her ground. The women of the king's court tried to speak to her as well, but no one was successful. She said, I was born a Jew, and I will die a Jew. When they realized that their gentle approach wouldn't work, they began to torture her, but she wouldn't change her mind. The judgment was passed that since she had already converted and now denied it, she must die. The Rosh HaKihilin Fez tried desperately to have the king pardon Sulika, but the king rebuffed his request. The young girl was taken out to the center of the city on Thursday, the market day, and before she was put to death, Sulika tied her dress in order to guard her modesty. Even when the hangman had already marked her neck with a sword, they tried to change her mind one more time. They promised her if she would convert, everything would be good. But she refused. The sword was put to her neck, and she called out, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echod. The people in the crowd were afraid that Chas v'shalom, her body would be desecrated. So a number of the Jews accompanied Rebbe Rafal HaTzafati to the marketplace. Rebbe Rafal took many silver coins and began to throw them in the air away from the place where the body was. Everyone was distracted by the coins. They ran to gather the coins. And the Jews, with great Mesiras Nefesh, self-sacrifice, grabbed her body and was able to escape. At the kvur of this young woman, there were many Hespedim, not only in Tangier, but around all the cities in Morocco, and as word spread around the world. May she be an example of Kiddush Hashem to us all. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. Wednesday. Thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. Our nine days format continues. Reminder, tonight in the Flatbush Hatzalah uh, Garage on Avenue N and Ocean Avenue in Brooklyn, a, a program entitled Be Prepared, Remain Calm, Respond. Know, to do, know what to do before Hatzalah arrives. It's the FJCC in conjunction with Flatbush Hatzalah hosting this free seminar for fathers in the community. Uh, dealing with issues like choking and bleeding and burns, etc. Tonight, 8.30, it starts at the Flatbush Garage, Avenue N and Ocean Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. The program is in memory of the Sassoon children. And um, uh, later on, we will speak about uh, more about the uh, Tishabov uh, Project by Project Inspire and uh, bring you more information uh, regarding um, Atisha above itself and the events of the day. 78 degrees, scattered thunderstorms, a high temperature of 84. Good morning on this Wednesday as we continue our nine days format at JM and the AM. Everybody, Beryl Wine is in the midst of a lecture entitled uh, Rechavia and Shari Chesed, Streets of Jerusalem, one of his most interesting and amazing series. Information 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And therefore, uh, Rechavia was very, very self-contained. Main Street in Rechavia was considered the, a barbanel. Don Yitzhak a barbanel, because it was a street that cut through uh, to uh, even Shaprut. And even Shaprut was the gateway to go to Shari Chesed. And it cut through on the other side to Al-Kharizi, which was the way to get to Ramban. 
So it was like a through street, even though it curves. And the Barbanel is naturally named after the great Don Yitzhak Barbanel, uh, the minister of Spain, uh, the great Meforish of the Tanakh, and uh, one of the great Jewish heroes uh, that existed in uh, that period of time. Ibn Gabirol is one of the great Jewish poem, poets, Rehov Ibn Gabirol. Uh, you'll notice that on Rehov Ibn Gabirol there is a synagogue called Chorev, and in front of the Chorev synagogue there is a poem of Ibn Gabirol, of Shlomo Ibn Gabirol, about uh, how he searches for God. Shachar Suri, in the morning I search for you, and God of my strength, etc. So Im Gabiro is uh, one of the great, Shlomo Im Gabiro is one of the uh, great Hebrew poets. Uh, the Svardim, he wrote a poem called Keter Melucha, which has 199 stanzas to it, uh, about uh, the glory of God. And the Svardim recite that poem, Kol Nidre Night, the entire poem. And I have met people who know the poem by heart. They teach their children to know that poem by heart. Uh, he is one of the great poets of the Sephardic world. Now, again, what happened today is, uh, yesterday was the anniversary of uh, the Rabin's assassination. At the end of Ibn Gabiro, when it comes to Ramban, there's a piece that goes to Azar. And when uh, Chaim Lazarov was assassinated, so again, his assassins were unknown, uh, but the, uh, it was the source of a tremendous uh, uh, rift, again, within the Jewish community, the right against the left. The left said the right assassinated him. The right said that uh, they denied it. The British tried a man by the name of Stavsky, who was a member of uh, the revisionists, uh, for the crime, but he was acquitted. And the irony of ironies is that Stavsky himself was later killed on the Alta Lena by Yitzhak Rabin. So, uh, you know, only the Lord can figure out all the puzzles. But in his memory, they had to make a street for him, and they wanted to make the street here in this central neighborhood, and they didn't have any streets left, so they made that piece, Arlazarov, which leads down to Aza. Eventually, when Merchavia came, so they extended the street to reach into uh, the other areas uh, that, uh, that abut uh, here. But the, uh, <coughs> the traffic pattern is such that most people spend quite a bit of time on our Lazarus. <laughs> That's a famous street that you cannot avoid because the traffic pattern in Merchavia forces everyone onto our Lazarov Street. But that's how that, so there also is a name that doesn't fit with the rest of the uh, pattern of names here in Rechavia, but that was done because of the fact that he was uh, assassinated when he was walking with his wife along the, uh, the beach in Tel Aviv. Finally, uh, Aza, Aza is an old street. And as the name indicates, it, if you stay on it long enough, you'll be in Gaza. Because uh, the uh, Derech Yafo, Jaffa Street, all of these were streets that led from the old city of Jerusalem. They were caravan trails. And uh, so if you stayed on Rehov Yafo long enough, you came to Yafo. And if you stood on 
Derech Shechem, you went out Shar Shechem, and you stayed on Derech Shechem long enough, you would end up in Nablus and Shechem. And Derech Aza, if you stayed on that street long enough, you know, for the uh, 100 kilometers or 200 kilometers, uh, you would end up in Gaza. So that, that, was a, that, was, that street preceded any neighborhoods here, because the road to Gaza was the road from the time of Avraham Avinu yet. And therefore, that was the natural boundary of Rechavia until they built Merchavia, uh, which uh, extended Rechavia. Uh, there was a whole fight about naming Jabotinsky Street Jabotinsky. Uh, Ben-Gurion and many of the left opposed any commemoration of Jabotinsky. When Ben-Gurion was prime minister, he refused to bring Jabotinsky's remains to be buried here in Jerusalem. He was a great man and a great hater. But uh, when Menachem Begin became the prime minister, one of the first things he did was bringing Jabotinsky's remains to be buried on Har Herzl. So then the street is Jabotinsky Street, which again marks the end of a neighborhood, because the other side already, you're coming to the Katamones, you're coming, and all of those were Arab neighborhoods until 1947 or 1948, and the struggle between the Haganah and the Jordanians and the uh, militia of the Arabs, uh, these neighborhoods all became Jewish neighborhoods, and the old city all became Arab, and East Jerusalem all became Arab. Uh, so it was like a trade-off of land, uh, but the, uh, the western part of the city uh, became entirely Jewish. So here we've had a small review of the neighborhood that we live in, of Rechavia and of Shari Chesed, and of the people that were instrumental in creating it and the stories that lie behind it. And uh, next week, God willing, we're going to talk about Givat Shaul, which also is a very fascinating story. In fact, every neighborhood in Jerusalem is uh, really worthy of a book by itself. And uh, I appreciate everyone coming. We're starting at 8 o'clock again. Thank you. J.M. in the A.M., a uh, fascinating series entitled The Streets of Jerusalem. In this first installment, Rabbi Beryl Wine speaking about the neighborhood of Rechavia and Shari Chesed. Upcoming, we'll do a few minutes before we get to the top of the hour and start speaking more about the Tisha B'av events on Givat Shaul and the Kiryat Moshe. 18 minutes before 8 o'clock as we say good morning on a Wednesday during our nine days format here at JM in the AM. I thank you for tuning in. Monday we are back to our regular format. Uh, some of the uh, features of our regular Week will be um, uh, taking place this week. For instance, uh, this coming Friday, Malcolm Holmline will join us for the weekly update here at JM and the AM starting at 7.40 Eastern Time. So keep that in mind. Also, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the sports rabbi from Israel, Rabbi Josh Halakman, is going to join us uh, about 8.30 Eastern Time this morning. Talk about the amazing day that Israel had yesterday at the Olympics. And uh, we'll discuss in general what he can tell us about the uh, developments in Rio etc. No one follows Israeli sports like he does, and we'll have that for you coming up here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine continues with Givat Shaul and Kiryat Moshe as he discusses the streets of Jerusalem here at JM in the AM. Uh, tonight's uh, lecture deals with uh, neighborhoods. Uh, I'm, go I'm going to do two neighborhoods, Givat Shaul and Kiryat Moshe, uh, that uh, adjoin each other. Uh, today they all run into each other so that we have a contiguous Jerusalem from the old city 
all the way out to Bayit Vagan, all the way out to Talpiot, all the way out to Harnot. But that is not the way Jerusalem looked uh, when it began. And we're talking about uh, 90 years ago when these neighborhoods, uh, when Jews started to develop uh, new neighborhoods here in Yerushalayim. So the same year that Shari Chesed was developed, as uh, I spoke to you about last week, uh, Givat Shaul was dedicated in 1908. Now, Givat Shaul was way out nowhere. In fact, uh, in the uh, founding of Givat Shaul, in the original uh, contract, uh, land authority, it was founded as an agricultural settlement to provide vegetables and fruit for the city of Jerusalem. Now, most of our neighborhoods provide fruit, a few provide vegetables. But the, uh, the idea was uh, that they would take settlers, and it was founded as a religious uh, settlement, and that each one would have a large plot of land, and on that large plot of land, uh, they would be able to plant. It was uh, uh, garden farming. And that this would also be the source of income to the people who lived there because they would market their vegetables and the fruit uh, in Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem would not be dependent any longer on uh, produce produced by Arab farmers uh, that many times were kilometers away. The only thing that was in that neighborhood, and if we call it uh, close to the neighborhood, was that there was an Arab village of Lifta, which is uh, in the valley. It's a good, when you go out the Jerusalem Highway today towards Tel Aviv, right when you go out the city, on the right side you have uh, this large uh, valley uh, originally, in that area, there was an Arab village after the 48 war. Uh, the village disappeared. And, uh, but that is... So, Givat Shaul was built on the other side of the road, and it was built as a Jewish neighborhood. It was called Givat Shaul in memory of uh, Rabbi Yaakov Shaul El-Yashar. Now, Rabbi El-Yashar was the Rishon Litzion. He was the Sephardic chief rabbi. And his son was one of the original founders, uh, Rav Nisim el-Yashar, was one of the original founders of Givat Shaul, and therefore that's why he had influence, so they named it Givat Shaul in memory of his father. And many people have asked, in the Tanakh we read about Givat Shaul, that that's where Shaul HaMelech was, so they wanted to know if that's where Shaul HaMelech was. So I imagine that's where he was, like... Uh, David is buried on Harzion, you know, but it's not that Shaul. It's a much later Shaul, uh, Rabbi Al-Yashar, who was the chief Sephardic rabbi, and his son uh, was one of those uh, who founded this community. What happened was that every family got uh, a sizable uh, piece of land. Uh, and because it was meant for farming, uh, so they thought that they would be able to attract people. They also, in order to attract people, built a yeshiva immediately called Yeshivat Givat Shaul, 
And uh, I have here a copy of the program of the founding of the yeshiva on the 27th of Adar, again in 1908. And the main guest speaker, believe it or not, was a rabbi from San Francisco. Uh, how he got there, uh, Rabbi Agon, Rabbi Avram Chaim, Ips, Rav de San Francisco. And he gave a test to all the Talmidim, and he was the guest speaker, and they founded the yeshiva. The yeshiva had about 25 Talmidim, and again, in order to attract Talmidim, they offered the free board, uh, free rooms, because they're trying to build up the neighborhood. And in order to build up the neighborhood, they wanted to make it attractive. Uh, the uh, buildings were originally there for little more than uh, trip, a little more than shacks, and the people engaged in this type of farming that I mentioned uh, before. Now, what happened then is, first of all, how did they... Uh, how did they get the land? So, the land always was bought from uh, Arabs. The, uh, the owners of the land were always Arabs, but most of the Arabs were absentee landlords. They were sheiks, they were people that lived somewhere else. And under the Turkish system of the Koshan, the Tabu, and all the other systems that they had, many times the title was not really clear. You didn't know so sometimes you bought the same piece of land four times or five times uh, because there always were people who complained. Uh, here, there was a Jew by the name of Slutskin from Lithuania, and Slutskin bought Givat Shaul. Uh, we have a copy of the original contract. He bought it from an Arab. He bought uh, Givat Shaul, Aleph, and Bet. We're talking about Aleph, about the old Givat Shaul. And uh, he uh, had this idea that he bought it on behalf of uh, the Jews who would then uh, move in and become farmers. Adjacent to Givat Shaul was another large piece of land. And there was a Jew by the name of Chaim Yosef Valero. Valero was a banker, an investment banker. And he had one of the first banks in Yerushalayim. And his main client was Kaiser Wilhelm. And he represented the German interests in Jerusalem. And we'll talk about German colony. Uh, he represented the purchase and management of property in Jerusalem owned by the Kaiser, because all of it was owned by the Kaiser. Uh, the German government and the Kaiser were synonymous, and therefore it was his private property. And Valero represented him. Valero uh, was a very wise person. Instead of taking payment in uh, German marks or uh, whatever the Turkish uh, money was at the time, he took payment in land in Jerusalem, and which the Kaiser cut off pieces of land and gave it to him. And so, therefore, Givat Shaul Bet, which is the Givat Shaul that now... Uh, it goes towards the cemetery, uh, goes towards all the high-tech, uh, uh, the whole new, uh, relatively new development. Uh, Givat Shaul Aleph was in 1908, Givat Shaul Bet is in 1933, 25 years later. But that whole area was owned by Valero. And when Valero died, he left in his will that it should be given to 
Jews who will be willing to come and settle. So you have here a, uh, one of the strange anomalies which we have throughout Jewish history is that the Kaiser really helped build uh, Givat Shaul, Givat Shaul Bet, because that property originally was his. Valero got it through the Kaiser. Valero's the one, his estate, he left it to his estate uh, to bring Jews in to, uh, uh, to farm there. And we have an interesting story about Givat Shaul Bet, completely fascinating, that uh, it was taken over by the Israeli Vegetarians Society, the Tzimchonim. And they were the ones that somehow got the permission to develop the property. And one of the clauses in the contract was that you were going to be a vegetarian. Just like in the religious neighborhoods, the contract was that you were going to be observant. So here you were going to be a vegetarian. And the vegetarians were able to get the, uh, the permission of uh, Valero's uh, uh, trustees. And uh, Givat Shaul Bet was developed, therefore, as a vegetarian haven. Uh, but uh, they ran out of vegetarians before they had land, before they had more land than vegetarians. And uh, I think today uh, Givat Shaul is pretty carnivorous. But, uh, but that's how it started. started. So again, you're way outside the city. Uh, you're not connected. Uh, really didn't become completely connected till the Mohammed uh, Atzma'ut, where after the, uh, the War of Independence, then the Jewish neighborhoods got together. The, the government wanted to make Jerusalem contiguous. They wanted to make the western part of Jerusalem fully Jewish, and therefore all of it. But for instance, when Givat Shaul was built, there was no Romema yet. Uh, Romema was not built till 1924. This was built in 1908. Other neighborhoods that today, uh, you know, run next to each other and run into each other and are the same neighborhood, uh, absolutely didn't exist then. So you really were out in the country. You really were out in the farm. And uh, that's what it was. Uh, Givat Shaul got a shot in the arm when the uh, Bet Yisomim, the uh, Diskin orphan home, uh, established itself in Givat Shaul. Now, uh, the Bet Yisomim Diskin, like all of the other Bet Yisomim, uh, Today we don't call these institutions by that name, uh, an orphan home, but uh, in times when uh, we were less euphemistic about, uh, we were more less euphemistic about things. So it was called an orphan home, and Nachmano Islam there always were orphans, and there also always were abandoned children, and there were problem children, and uh, Rabbi Diskin. Uh, we spoke about last week, we were about his street here in uh, the bottom of Sharei Chesed. Rabbi Diskin, uh, when he was in Yerushalayim, established an orphan home. And they collected money all over the Jewish world, and eventually they had enough money to build, to build a decent building. They built it in Givat Shaul. And that became a, uh, an attraction. Why did it become an attraction? Because you needed people to service the home. Uh, professionals to service the home. You needed people to supply the home with food. Uh, if you have institutions in the area, 
automatically it creates uh, jobs and it creates the necessity for people and therefore the neighborhood began to develop. Also, uh, the, uh, in uh, today, uh, the famous bakeries of Jerusalem are also located in Givat Shaul. Now, uh, in 1839, uh, there was a Jew by the name of Berman that made a bakery in the old city. And the bakery was his main business. The main business of bakeries was not to sell bread, but the main bakeries of business was that Shabbos, you had a place to put the chom. Because people did not have in their homes, and therefore... Uh, in a, in a, so today, uh, you know, uh, my chone should be in the same oven as your chone, you know, would probably not go anymore. But uh, in a simpler time in the Jewish world, uh, and that's the way it was in Eastern Europe. Not only that, in Eastern Europe there was a job. There was a guy that would deliver chone. That was his job. So that when it came uh, the end of the services towards Ein Kelakenu, he would slip out of the shul. And he had a big belt with hooks. And he put the pots on the hooks. If he didn't like you, the hook was in the back. But, you know, that's where your chone came from. But, and he would... Seriously. I remember a man in Chicago yet. Um, his name was Zakheim. That was, he used to speak about how the guy used to come with the belt. He had three belts, you know. And the, the rov got the best belt on top. But some guys that he didn't like, you know, he put them in the back. And uh, so he would deliver the chond every Shabbos to your house. And that was his uh, parnosa. That was his uh, livelihood. That's how he made a living. So Berman had this big oven, and everybody brought him the chond. Eventually, since he had the oven, he decided that why should it only be once a week? He's going to use it as a bakery. And the Berman Bakery still exists until today. It's uh, 160 years old, and it still is in. It's a very big bakery, a uh, very popular bakery. But in Givat Shaul, uh, Fruman Crackers began, which was like the first uh, modern uh, consumer-oriented product here in Jerusalem. And the Fruman Bakery was also in Givat Shaul. And uh, so Fruman has since been overshadowed probably by Osem and by Telma and all the other uh, giant food conglomerates in this country. Uh, but it still is in business, Fruman. And uh, they're, uh, they're, uh, the fact that they were in Givat Shaul also gave Givat Shaul a certain uh, shot in the arm and uh, made it uh, an attractive place to be. Uh, later, after the 1948 war, the, uh, the uh, municipality and the government of Israel made the main uh, flour milling center of uh, the area uh, in Givat Shaul, where it is today, Angels. And uh, so then Angels moved there. A number of years ago, Angels uh, was going to move out of Givat Shaul, or they threatened to, etc., and there was such a row uh, that uh, they were that they decided to stay. But you have to admit that on Thursday night, Givat Shaul is probably the best-smelling neighborhood in the city of Jerusalem because you have all of these bakeries. All the bakeries are working, and uh, and you have this uh, delightful uh, aroma of fresh-baked challah and fresh-baked goods, etc. 
and uh, then you have the main, uh, the main milling station in Jerusalem uh, there in Givat Shaul. Also, uh, what happened was that in the expansion of the city of Jerusalem, which eventually ends in Harnov, so then uh, Kanfei Sharim, which has two or three other names before it becomes Kanfei Sharim, because of the fact that the street was extended every time. It, the street, when originally was built, didn't go to uh, the Harnov. It ended uh, before Givat Shaul, and then it ended at Givat Shaul, and then they kept on building it. And you'll notice as they built it, the street became wider, became more of a street, more of a modern street. And on Kanfei Nisharim, they built the high-tech, uh, off of uh, fancy buildings, office buildings, government buildings. It became a very uh, upscale uh, type of commercial center. In Givat Shaul Bet, on the other side of the road, they made it an Azor Tasiya. They made it a, uh, a, uh, an industrial zone. And there you have uh, uh, Sapir, Merkaz Sapir, for instance. And uh, there's a $100 prize for anybody who can find the El Al check-in place. Uh, the first time, because they arrange it in such a way that no human being can find it, because everybody knows where it is, right? Why should they tell you? But uh, all, all of that, uh, the, the big post office center that is there, all of that is later. And that's because as the city developed and it pushed out and they needed more room, so this became a central street. So that even today, Givat Shaul is a very central street. What also happened is that there was a hospital called Ezrat Nashim, which was a, originally a gynecological hospital and a hospital for uh, obstetrics and for birth. And uh, the, 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 today it's named after Rebbe Sansara Herzog, Sholem, uh, the Herzog Hospital, because she was so active in promoting it. So that hospital also moved out of the old city and it moved from the, where it was and it moved out to the end of Givat Shaul, all the way to the end, which they thought would be the end of the city. And we have, for instance, cemeteries here in the middle of the city, and not only in our city, but we have it all over the world, uh, because people, originally the cemetery was outside the city, but the city grew and it expanded and therefore it enveloped the cemetery. J.M. and the A.M. are by Beryl Wine, speaking to us about the streets of Jerusalem, an amazing series. He is now, uh, as he speaks, um, describing Givat Shaol and Kiryat Moshe. We'll conclude this lecture coming up in the 8 o'clock hour. It is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live. Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jnam.org, and of course on the uh, NSN app. Yossi Friedman is with us live via telephone. He is um, the managing director of Project Inspire. Uh, many of you are aware at this point, especially if you listen to this show, that Project Inspire has some uh, be beautiful plans uh, for Tisha B'Av. There is a brand new film entitled The Formula a compelling 50-minute film presentation with insights from Rav Aryeh Malkiel Cutler Shlita and closing remarks and a special message from Rav Hillel David Shlita. Um, it, the, uh, the, um, the subtitle is How to Achieve Guaranteed Success in Avas Yisrael and Bringing Hashem's Children 
back to Torah. In addition, the live stream talk show, something that we've been uh, uh, cooperating with Project Inspire on for a long, long time already, uh, will present the Charlie Harari and the Project Inspire staff to wrap up Tisha B'Av at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Tisha B'Av itself on Sunday. And uh, you could see it in a variety of places, of course, including uh, you could see it and hear it in a variety of places, including our very own website. And um, we'll give you de- more details as we continue to get closer and closer to the event. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Yossi Friedman is with us live via telephone. It is a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much, Apple. Good morning. Good morning. Could you just, uh, I know we have these two things to speak about and to focus on, but could you just describe to this audience the growth of Project Inspire, you know, why and when it started and uh, where where the group has gotten to uh, up until today? Sure, absolutely. Project Inspire began about nine years ago, and it was the vision of Noah Weinberg. Um, it was actually what he called his Plan A. Actually, Asia Torah was his Plan B. And his plan was obviously to reach all disconnected Jews around the world. And the way he wanted to do that was by involving the from community around the around North America um, to be able to be his army to bring these uh, to bring these disconnected Jews back. However, he called himself a failure. In nineteen seventy eight he he went to visit Lakewood, gave a series over there, and he called himself a failure. So what could he do? He opened the Shatora as a plan B, if you can imagine that. <laughs> imagine. And and um but of late, over the last 10 years or so, the concept of from people getting involved in outreach has picked up tremendously. People have seen that they could be successful in doing it. People see that they have the opportunity to do it. And over the years, tens of thousands of people have gotten involved in doing outreach um, to people that they meet in, you know, in their office, their neighbors, relatives. Um, and it's been it's been a phenomenon, and, and Baruch Hashem, it's been amazing. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the videos, both serious and comedic, that we've seen over this last decade, have been very influential in getting people to think about getting involved and eventually getting involved. Very, very enough. And and the truth is that this year's film is actually, in my opinion, and I'm a little biased because I did I did make the film, is a little is is more relatable in a way because it's not a fairy tale story, of you know. Look! Look what happened over here. I mean, many people. If I had a dollar for every person that told me, you know, I did something, you know, I reached out to this guy, I sent him Hanukkah candles, etc., and nothing happened, you know, um, or like, how do I do it? You know, I mean, I feel that there are cure professionals. How do I do it? This year, we put together a film um, to show people how what success really is with regard to outreach, and we have sh- stories really inspirational stories that show exactly what how to be successful in that. And that's why you uh, call it the formula. <laughs> that's right. This is the formula. If you want to know exactly what to do in order to be successful, this is the film to watch. Jesse Friedman's with us and I don't want to I don't want to read too much into the language that you use in the subtitle, but it does say how to achieve guaranteed success in Avas Yisrael and bringing Hashem's children back to Torah. Can I assume from that subtitle, that in order to achieve the second, one must be good at the first one first, meaning your Avas Yisrael has to be at a certain level before you can consider having this type of influence on others. That, that's, definitely, that's definitely true. However, people try to do things with regard to Avas Yisrael. You know, there, there are people that you reach out to, not even necessarily on a you know, cure of level, but you reach out to them, you do something, and you don't necessarily see the effect. Uh, you don't necessarily see how it actually achieved, um, you know, 
you try to reach out to, to a family, you know, who's in need, and you don't really see that you are able to help them, and you know, and what comes out at the end of it, you know, without without giving too much away of the right. of the plot of the film, but it, it basically takes away a lot of the frustration and disappointment that people have in in not knowing necessarily what what transpires based on their actions. Understood. Jesse Friedman's with us. We're talking about Project Inspire and what's happening this Tisha B'Av. All right, how do people get the film? How do people make this part of their Tisha B'Av day this Sunday? Right. So there are showings all, all over the, you know, well, really all over the world. Um, we just got our copies out to England and to, and to Israel as well. However, online at projectinspire.com, um, you can view it. There's a donation of $10 that's, uh, that's required. Um, but basically people have been watching it. Tens of thousands have watched it. Um, I know it connects from your site as well, from other sites. Right. Really, it's hard It's hard not to be able to access the film. <laughs> that's um, true. Just search uh, Project Inspire, yeah. you're going to find it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you'll, you'll find it. it. It's out there, and uh, it's really, I, I, like I said, it, it's, um, it's probably the most relatable film. It's not a funny film, obviously. It is Tish Above. Although we get a lot of hits on the funny films, yeah, as I well. can I imagine. I, I can see why people would like watching those over and over and over. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's some really good ones. Uh, but yeah. yes, this is a serious one, and everyone understands it's an important message, and it's brand new, so they get to see it now during these yep. nine days, and uh, uh, on the upcoming uh, day of Tisha B'av. It's called the Formula. It's the Tisha B'av 2016 film. Project Inspires responsible for it. By the way, and I'll give details in a second. By the way. Um, I, I opened by asking about the growth and you know what's been happening over the last nine years, etc. Your your middle management, if you will, has grown like crazy. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that there are so many rabbis. It seems to me, at least, there are so many rabbis and and people involved in some way in community affairs who have really joined your team. And I'm speaking about as volunteers, you know, people who are taking up the cause. Who are and they themselves, of course, then go ahead through the videos and other means, go ahead and influence thousands to get you know involved on their level. Right. Absolutely. And and the truth is that 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 was part of the original plan, even though. Might have taken, you know, no, a little longer, but you know, Rabbi Chaim Samson picked this up about, uh, you know, ten years ago. Really decided to, you know, make make his dream a reality. But th- that was exactly the point: is that we can't just do this by way of like, you know, hiring cure professionals around the world. We'll never be able to reach the guy sitting next to you in the cubicle next to you at work right. because, it's, you know, because it's a program on a Thursday night. Like there has to be a better way to reach people where they are. Right. And, and, you know, certainly many Rabbanim have stepped up, in the, you know, in, in the last bunch of years to really, you know, spread the message in their communities and their shuls. Um, and this year, this year, no different. Yeah, uh, the film includes uh, Rav Ari Malkiel Cutler that we mentioned, the Rosh Hashiva in Lakewood. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's fair to ask you for a uh, summation of his words because we want absolutely. People- yeah, it's, it's interesting now because one of our stories takes us into not only Lakewood but it takes us into the Lakewood based Medrash, and uh, we actually um, it was a little bit of a surprise for for uh, the Rosh Hashiva. We went to him and said, you know. This happened like in your base medrash. Oh, a true a story. story. A, tr- a true story. True story. Oh yes, live story. And and it it, it happened in the Lakewood base medrash, which is probably the least likely of places for a story like that to have happened. Huh. Um, so we wanted to get his his take on it also. So he uh, he comments comments on it as well. It, it's fascinating that something like this is probably the last place you would think that it would happen, but it did. And Rav Hill David has closing remarks and a special message as well. And that's included in the film, and uh, and they are both part of this presentation. So I mean, right. you have yeah, you, you have. Well, um, David has been has been a long long time friend of Project Inspire, but he he has a very important message which takes somebody of his stature to 
to deliver, uh, which is why it's closing remarks. Many times we have them in the beginning, but it, it's, it's really, it, it, um, it brings the whole film together with the message at the end. With the whole day. You, you want people to be left with his words, let's put it absolutely, that way. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, that's part one to our discussion. Uh, Yossi Friedman's with us, Project Inspire. You can go to the Project Inspire website. You can go to our website. There's information there. Uh, with a link. It's the Tisha Buff 2016 film. It's called The Formula. It's a compelling 50-minute film presentation. Both by Cutler and by David are included, as we mentioned. The subtitle is How to Achieve Guaranteed Success in Avas Yisrael in Love of One's Fellow Man and Bringing Hashem's Children Back to Torah. Um, those of you familiar already, those of us, I should say, familiar with Project Inspire, you understand their message and what they're trying to accomplish. If you've never seen any of these videos, check out both the serious and the funny ones, because it'll help everybody out there in their uh, pursuit of reaching out to those that you work with, you know, relatives, etc., etc. A, a second part, and, and you mentioned to me off the air, this is really an extension <clears throat> of what's happening regarding the film, and this is a project that we're very fond of, because we were with you at the very beginning of this project, and that is Charlie Harari, great speaker, very inspiring, wrapping up Tisha B'Av, with everybody, a live streaming talk show with Charlie Harari and the Project Inspire staff. That's going to happen Sunday beginning at 6.30 p.m. It's going to be done from Brooklyn, New York. People will be able to watch it on all the variety of websites. It's all there on the um, uh, on the uh, site for everybody. And we'll remind everybody as we get closer all the different places that it can be viewed. Uh, why is this uh, so vital to wrap up? So, you know, we talk about how important Lael Tishabov is with Eicha and, and, the, and the sadness of the night. We know how vital the morning of Tishabov is with, um, uh, with the long kinnis service. A lot of people, as Tishabov starts to, uh, to go away, do not feel as, as serious a period of time. Why is this such a, a great boost to everybody at the end of the Tishabov observance? Right. It, you know, it, it's, uh, I have this look on, on Tishabov to spend with two of the great. Uh, presenters and uh, meaningful presenters um, in the Jewish world, which is Yaakov Salman on the takes us through the film, and then Charlie Harari to end the fast. But we, we felt that at, at the end of Tisha B'Av, people are essentially looking at their watches. <laughs> um, and, you know, all the programs are basically over. All the food has already been cooking. And when is Mariv, right? Around. When is Mariv? <laughs> That's when's Mariv, right? What's the earliest month? You know, if you're really not feeling well, what's the earliest month? So everyone's looking at their watches. And the truth is that we felt that people shouldn't end Tish above, you know, by way of looking at their watches. So uh, we put together this program. I believe it's our fourth year we did it with, you know, we started off in your studio, actually, the first year. That's right. And have since moved it to locations where people can actually come view it live. Right. Um, and, and really, Charlie... Um, you know, takes off, you know, off, off, running off the film of obviously Israel and of, of bringing of bringing Jews closer to Judaism. Really, Delvin, um, we have guest speakers that come and different rabbanim that come on, different guest speakers that speak about how we can actually, you know, achieve that. And um, and he'll have pl- close, he'll have yeah. plenty of references to the film itself, right? Oh, absolutely. We'll have some clips shown. We'll have. We also. It's a combination of all the programs that we right. try. We we show clips from the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation film. We show films, you know, from the uh, clips from the Arnava program. We we you know we're showing different clips and different highlights, so to speak, that happened over Tisha B'Av, just to basically remind people what the message of the day was in order in order to end the fast that way, as opposed to just looking at their watches. Very cool. All right, so that's happening starting at six thirty. A chance to uh, see it and uh, hear conclusion of Tisha B'Av with Charlie Harari and uh, see the uh, work they're doing. Uh, once you search, no doubt a whole bunch of their uh, classic videos will come up and you'll be able to see those and it'll help you help everybody uh, become part of a uh, of a movement, a movement that will um, uh, make it easier 
to spread the word of the beauty of Judaism to those who may not know it yet. Uh, Yossi Friedman, I thank you. Um, congratulations on, uh, from what we hear, another great film and another inspiring uh, Tisha B'Av for all those who are going to be uh, uh, tuned in toward the end of the fast. And uh, may this be the last time that we have to do this on Tisha B'Av. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Nachum. Looking forward to seeing you back in Yerushalayim. Bezrat Hashem, I appreciate that. Nothing like being on the porch of Aisha Torah, I can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, there he is, Jesse Friedman, Managing Director at the Project Inspire. And um, the film is available. Uh, details, if you go to the Project Inspire website or just search Project Inspire. And the Charlie Harari in a tradition that we helped found years ago is going to be wrapping up Tisha B'Av with a two-hour uh, a live uh, webcast that's going to be starting at 6.30 p.m. on Sunday. Well worth tuning in. 17 minutes after 8 o'clock. It is a Wednesday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM. 78 degrees, scattered thunderstorms, and a high temperature of 84. We're going to go back to Rabbi Beryl Wine as he presents the streets of Jerusalem on Givat Shaul and Kiryat Moshe. And um, after that, the sports rabbi is scheduled to join us from Israel. Speaking of Israel, uh, the state of Israel had quite a day yesterday at the Rio Olympics. And we'll explain all that coming up here at JM in the AM. Streets of Jerusalem continues with our barrel wine at JM in the AM. Well, then, Confein uh, Sharim, which has two or three other names before it becomes Confein Sharim, because of the fact that the street was extended every time. It, the street, when originally it was built, didn't go to uh, the Harnov. It ended uh, before Givat Shaul, and then it ended at Givat Shaul, and then they kept on building it. And you'll notice as they built it, the street became wider, became more of a street, more of a modern street. And on Confei Nisharim, they built the uh, high-tech, uh, off of uh, fancy buildings, office buildings, government buildings. It became a very uh, upscale uh, type of commercial center. In Givat Shaul Bet, on the other side of the road, they made it an Azer Tasiya, they made it a, uh, a, uh, an industrial zone, and there you have uh, uh, Sapir, Merkaz Sapir, for instance, and uh, there's a hundred dollar prize for anybody who can find the El Al check-in place uh, the first time, because they arrange it in such a way that no human being can find it because everybody knows where it is, right? Why should they tell you? But uh, all, all of that, uh, the, the big post office center that is there, all of that is later. And that's because as the city developed and it pushed out and they needed more room, so this became a central street so that even today Givat Shaul is a very central street. What also happened is that there was a hospital called Ezrat Nashim, which was a, originally a gynecological hospital and a hospital for uh, obstetrics and for birth. And uh, the, 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 today it's named after Rebbe Sansara Herzog, Sholem, uh, the Herzog Hospital, because she was so active in promoting it. So that hospital also moved out of the old city and it moved from the, where it was and it moved out to the end of Givat Shaul, all the way to the end, which they thought would be the end of the city. And we have, for instance, cemeteries here in the middle of the city, and not only in our city, but we have it all over the world, uh, because people, originally the cemetery was outside the city, but the city grew and it expanded, and therefore it enveloped the cemetery. 
after the uh, War of Independence, when uh, Hara Zaytim was no longer available as a Jewish cemetery, uh, there was no way that the uh, Jews could come there. It was under Jordanian control, so the uh, city had to look for an alternative Jewish cemetery. So they went to the end of Givat Shaul, to Haram Nuchot, and Haram Nuchot became the main cemetery of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, to a great extent today it is the main cemetery, even though Harazetim is still functioning. But uh, Haram Nuchot and Haram Nuchot is constantly being expanded. Uh, and uh, so that also became part of Givat Shaul all the way out to there. And uh, when the Tel Aviv-Jerusalem highway was opened, etc., so then they made separate entrances into Givat Shaul, so it became a very, very large and strong neighborhood. There's an auxiliary street in uh, Givat Shaul called Beit Atfus. I never recommend that you take that street because uh, it's always loaded with uh, trucks uh, that are double parked and other things, but it is, uh, it'll get you eventually to Harnov. And uh, why was it called Beit Atfus? Because originally the printing of newspapers and other uh, uh, print uh, things were all located on that street. In the 1930s, all the newspapers moved to Tel Aviv with the exception of the Jerusalem Post. Uh, they all decided to leave Jerusalem and uh, move. But the uh, Beit HaTfus today, a large portion of Beit HaTfus was purchased by the Beam Anishevitz company, the matzah company in Cincinnati. And they were going to open a matzah factory here in Jerusalem. But uh, for various reasons, it never happened. Uh, the American Depression, uh, the fact that the, uh, the local matzah companies were less than hospitable to the idea. Uh, all sorts of problems arose. And it's interesting, though, that uh, Matzot Yehuda, the Yehuda Matzah Factory, which is on Beit Atfus, is on the land of the Manashevitz Company. So matzah is matzah. Uh, I'd not, I wasn't able to determine whether Manashevitz still owns it. Uh, Manashevitz itself has been sold many times since. It's part of a great American uh, food conglomerate. It's not owned by Jews anymore. Uh, but, uh, but whether or not they still own the land or whether they sold it off, uh, but, that, uh, but uh, that was all part of Beit Atfus. And by making it an industrial center, uh, they discovered something which has happened in many other neighborhoods and many other towns. That if you have an industrial center, all you have a chance that people will move in. You have a chance for jobs, you have a chance for development, etc. So it's a plus and a minus because an industrial center has uh, pollution and noise and it has uh, all sorts of other things that come with it. But on the other hand, it does bring an economy, it does bring into the neighborhood the ability to make a living, which is very important. Now the streets in Kiryat Shaul Aleph are fast, all the streets in Jerusalem are named in a fascinating fashion. But here, uh, because the neighborhood was originally religious, and even today is basically a religious neighborhood, uh, so therefore the names that were chosen uh, reflected that. 
And we have uh, three types of names in the, uh, in the original plan. The first were the names of all the Targumim of the Torah into Aramaic. So we have the one main street, it's called Unculus Street, after Targum Unculus. Unculus was a Ger. Uh, Unculus is a Greek name. Uh, he was a convert to Judaism. Uh, there are two people in the Talmud. One is Unculus and one is Achilles. Achilles is the Greek name Achilles. Now, the question is, and all the scholars debate it, are Unculus and Achilles the same person? And is it just the, uh, the way, uh, you know, the uh, Jews speak uh, that uh, somehow uh, change the name? Because, uh, in, you know, that an ayin, the letter ayin in Hebrew, uh, in correct Hebrew, the way the Sephardim speak it, has an N sound to it. So, for instance, that's why even in the, the Ashkenazim, when you say Yaakov, but you say Yankele. Why do you say Yankele? Where did that nun come from? That nun comes from the ayin. It's the difference between an aleph and an ayin. An aleph is ah, and an ayin is un. But um, amongst the Ashkenazim, the nun started to disappear very quickly. And when Ashkenazim speak today, usually in Davning, etc., you cannot hear the difference. I heard the great Rashi Yeshiva who used to say Shmang Yisrael because they wanted to hear, they wanted the ayin to be heard uh, correctly. Uh, and that's with a noon at the end. So if we will say that Achilles, so then it became Ankylus, and Ankylus is easily Unculus. And that's how, and so they're one and the same person. However, uh, there is opinion that doesn't like any of these exotic things that I'm telling you. And therefore, the opinion is that Achilles and Unculus are two separate people. In any event, Achilles was a nephew of the Roman Emperor Nero. And uh, the uh, Medrash uh, has many uh, stories about the conversation between the uncle and the nephew. Nero came to Jerusalem in the year, uh, in the, in the year uh, 60, uh, I'm sorry, in the year, uh, yeah, in the year 60 before the Common Era. And he captured Jerusalem, but he did not destroy it. He did not send the Jews into exile, nor did he touch the temple. But what he did was put the city under Roman uh, control, and later uh, that's how Herod became... Uh, Antipater became the ruler, and then his son Herod, and then Agrippa. They were all appointed by the Romans. And this is all before the great revolt against the Romans, which happened in the year 63 after the Common Era. But anyway, Nero was here, and his nephew was here with him in the Roman army, with the Roman legions. And the nephew, uh, I don't know, Schuster picked him up the wall. I don't know what happened. But he became a Jew, and uh, his uncle said to him, uh, how could you do such a thing against, you know, I'm, I'm the Roman emperor and we worship our gods, and you disgrace our family uh, by converting and becoming Jewish? So he said, I just followed your advice, uncle. He said, my advice? I never told you to become Jewish. 
He said, no, but you told me that the rule in commerce is to buy something when it is low and hold on to it till it becomes dear. And that's how you'll become wealthy. He said, there's nothing as low in the world today as the Jewish people, as the way the, the Jews are held in Torah. But there will be nothing that will be as dear throughout the long run of history and to the end of days as being a Jew. So I did what you told me, and therefore I converted. So uh, whether Achilles and Unculus are the same, again, there are two opinions. But the street Unculus exists. And when we say, Shnayim Mikra Vecha Targum, that Jews review the Parsha of the week twice, the way it's written in the Torah, and once according to the Targum, to the Aramaic translation of Unculus. According to the rabbis, Unculus was blessed with divine guidance when he wrote the Targum, so that it's not just a work of scholarship, it's a work of divine inspiration. And uh, Unculus remains, uh, Maimonides discusses him very often in... Uh, in, uh, in the Mora <coughs> Nebuchim and also in the Sefer Amada. Uh, you'll notice, for instance, in the Targum Unculus, wherever uh, God, so to speak, there's an attribute, a physical attribute, God's hand, God's eyes, he never translates it literally. But he translates it only allegorically. And the Rambam liked that. That was his kind of man. And uh, he always quotes Unculus uh, in, the, in the idea that the Lord can only be treated in, a, in an allegorical fashion. This is the end of side one. J.M. and the A.M. as we uh, continue with Rabbi Beryl Wine and his series entitled Streets of Jerusalem. We will get to the second half of this lecture coming up here at J.M. and the A.M. 78 degrees outside with uh, 85% humidity, winds are southwest at 4 miles an hour. And um, thunderstorms expected today with a high temperature of 84 degrees. Thunderstorms early tonight, a low of 77 and mostly cloudy weather for tomorrow with a high temperature of 90. Yerushalayim at 87, we are at uh, 78 degrees here in Jersey City as we... Say good morning here at JM in the AM. And um, as promised, the sports rabbi, Rabbi Josh Halleckman, is going to be joining us in a second here at JM in the AM. Many of you at this point are aware of the fact that Israel had quite a day at the Rio Olympics yesterday. <laughs> quite a day is right. Um, when there's a medal won by an Israeli athlete, an athlete representing the state of Israel, you know it's a good day. Yardane Gerbi is the name of the uh, athlete, a, a judoist who uh, came in third place and won a bronze medal yesterday, or by Josh Halleckman. Like nobody else knows his sports in the state of Israel and joins us live via telephone. Sports Rabbi, welcome back to JM in the AM. What's going on, Nachum? Everything is wonderful. I'm curious if Yardane Gerby was in your pre-Olympic analysis as somebody who could walk away with a medal. Yes, she certainly was. Yardane Gerby, actually. Ah, her name. Yardane she has Gerby. been a world champion. Nachum, she won the 2013 world championship in the 63-kilogram uh, category in judo back in Rio, actually, in 2013. So she's familiar with the facilities, familiar with the city, 
And uh, she did Israel and all the Jewish people worldwide very proud yesterday. It was an amazing day. Nachum, you have no idea. I was at the president's residence today, Ruby Rivlin. I was rubbing shoulders with Ruby Rivlin this morning at a special event representing Maccabi Tel Aviv Football Club. And I got to tell you that the talk of the, of the event was all about uh, Yarden Zerbi, <laughs> how amazing she did, and what kind of... Forget about everything else that was going on. She was the highlight of she was the highlight of this event. Rabbi Josh Halakman is with us, a sports rabbi from Israel. Yardane Jerby is a bronze medalist for the state of Israel. This brings sports rabbi the medal count in the history of the state of Israel to eight: one gold medal and assorted others. Uh, why is it that half of them? are in judo. What is it about Israeli society that has brought up young people who become experts at this sport? You know, you have to take a look back to the 92 Barcelona Olympics when uh, we won two medals in judo. Uh, the first ever medal for Israel was won by El Arad. First ever gold. silver medal. Oh, that was silver, right. And it was a silver medal. And then Oren Smadja won a bronze medal that same year. It's kind of interesting. A lot of people don't remember that Arun Smadja actually won a medal that year because he was overshadowed by Yarden Jerby being the first ever. Not Yarden Jerby. By, really by, you said Yarden Jerby. By Al Arad, right. Excuse me, Al Arad. Right. Yes, Al Arad. And I think that really opened up the, the eyes of many people that judo is a sport that uh, can be participated by Israel across the world and can be a very strong sport. Arik Zevi, of course, a former European world champion, and uh, he was also a medal winner in uh, 2004 at the Athens Olympics, also winning a bronze medal, of course, represented Israel extremely well. Um, you have to remember that now, today's we had we have a number of people that could have won medals in the judo category, and we still have a couple of more people coming up in the next two days so it's a very exciting time right now. Sagi Muki, who represented Israel uh, in uh, male judo the day before, made it to the uh, to the bronze medal match and then fell, unfortunately, but was close. I think that gave Yarden Zerbi that that initiative to take it the next step further. And who knows? Today we have Linda Boulder, who is representing Israel uh, originally, and Ola from Holland, and she's going to be representing Israel in the 70 kilogram category. And on Friday, we have Ori Sasson, who is in the 100-plus kilo category. He's a, quite the individual, Nachum. He's a big man. Huh. A big man he is. And these are another two uh, individuals that, who knows, could possibly walk away with fine results. Um, we have a lot of good judokos, that's for sure, Nachum. That's for sure. But Josh Halleckman is with us. We have the best sports rabbi out there uh, with us live via telephone. Are there any other sports going into these games where people might have suspected or still suspect that Israel could place in a gold, silver, or bronze category? Yes, definitely. We still have coming up next week. Actually, right now, I'll bring up Mayan Davidovich, who's a sailor. She right now is in fifth place overall in her sailing category after, I believe, three days. Today she's off, and I believe that they finish it off tomorrow. Uh, that that uh, and she's very close at being in fifth place right now. She's very close to a medal. She would have been an, a dark horse. So if she does finish with a medal, that would be phenomenal. Though wouldn't be shocking to the insiders. We also have Hannah 
is Nieva Minenko, who is a triple jumper. She will be battling for the gold medal in that event next week. Wow. Um, she's an amazing, she's an amazing athlete, and we're really looking forward. She definitely will be battling. We have Ilana Kartish, who is a wrestler. She's going to be battling for a medal next week as well. Um, there are, you know, we also have, of course, a rhythmic gymnastics team, uh, which is fantastic, um, which they will also be battling for a medal. They have won world and European championships before. So I remember speaking to Miriam. I remember speaking to Miriam, Nachum, and I told her, don't be shocked if we walk away with three or four medals here. Right. And I'm going to say it very tentatively, but don't be surprised. Uh, Josh Halleckman is with us from Israel. Uh, I'm curious about the background. I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you know, we're curious what different aliyot have had in terms of influence uh, on Israeli sports society, uh, whether it be an aliyah from Ethiopia, from Russia, etc. Uh, do we know where Yardane Jerby's roots are? Is this somebody who's uh, you know an, Isra- an Israeli for many generations? She's Israeli as Israeli can be. They actually were broadcasting live from her parents' home, and her mother was so excited as <laughs> she won. The flags were waving. It was an absolutely uh, tremendous moment. I was actually speaking to one of the hosts of our Olympic coverage here on Sport 5, Arusa Sport, the sports channel. He was at the, uh, the Bay Tennessee at the president's house today, Modi Baron, and he said to me the highlight of the evening for him was seeing the family celebrating, he back here in Israel and celebrating and, and just, not only were they celebrating, the whole country was watching this at 10.30 yeah, last night. I can imagine. Literally the whole country. Uh, any other sports influenced by those who come from other countries or whose parents came from other countries? Yeah, I mean, again, today we have Linda Boulder, who's uh, made Aliyah with her husband from the Netherlands a couple of years ago. Right. That would be one, for example. Donald Sanford, who's going to be uh, one of our runners, he'll be uh, in the athletic competition. He's from the United States. He'll be participating next week. Letitia Beck. Nahum, you ever hear of Letitia Beck? No. She's an LPGA golfer. Hmm. She is originally from Belgium. And... Uh, her family settled in Kisaria, luckily for her, because that's right next to the only golf course in Israel. <laughs> so she is. <laughs> so she settled there at the age of five, trained many years in the United States, went to Duke University, but represents Israel, the first Israeli ever to be on the LPGA or PGA Tour. Um, so, you know, the list goes on and on. Hanak Kiznyanto-Menenko, of course, from the former Soviet Union. And we have the rhythmic gymnastics. Many of the athletes there uh, are, again, also from uh, the former Soviet Union. It could be an Evangelina Teitelbaum, which is you know an interesting name in itself, <laughs> Ekaterina Levina, uh, Karina Livyar, Alona Koshevtieski. So those are all, uh, again, all from the former Soviet Union and the countries around there. Uh, this is, you know, it's really Kibbutz Galiot. That's what it really represents, these Olympic Games. And in this case, the Kibbutz Galiot has really, really helped the Israeli sports scene, (laughs) to say the least. No, definitely. (laughs) Rabbi Josh Halleckman is with us, a sports rabbi. What do you make of this Amari Stoudemire story, that he wants to play basketball in Jerusalem? i got to tell you, Nachum, having Amari Stoudemire speak about the Jewish state, speak about his love for the holy city, Speak about wanting to play basketball in Israel is the greatest 
the, really the greatest uh, Hasbara we can get. Yeah. Does it get any bigger than that when you have articles in the New York Post and the New York Times and the New York Daily News and around the United States that here's an NBA player who could have probably gotten, a, we know he's had injuries and he's not what he used to be, However, he probably could have gotten a contract with the team in the NBA, as he told us a couple of days ago. And he decided that he wanted to come here to Israel. And he's not coming for one year, Nachum. He has said that he's committing to be here for two years. Yeah. He really wants to explore this, you know, the, the roots, what he calls his Jewish roots, his Hebrew roots. And, you know, really, at the end of the day, the more friends we can have here in Israel that can uh, do Hasbara for Israel and the Jewish state, Around the world is, you know, is what we need. Yeah, what impressed the most important Hasbara. What impressed me the most was his attitude towards Shana Bet, because he made a point. <laughs> he, he made a point of saying that I'm not, even though he didn't put it this way, but it sounded like it to me. I'm no tourist. I'm not letting my my family just, you know, show up for a few months and and leave after what seems to be a tourist like experience. We are going to really enjoy and experience the land and live like we are residents of this country for a couple of years. So I thought that was a pretty cool attitude that he portrayed. No, definitely. Uh, again, having him here is spectacular. He, along with Omri Caspi, and another and another few NBA players, uh, Chris Copeland and a couple of uh, famous type of people as well uh, from the media world that are in Israel right now. And they had a... Uh, a uh, program here in Jerusalem a couple days ago at the old Malcha Arena, the old Jerusalem Basketball Arena, um, which uh, was great. It was really well attended. The media is picking up on it, of course, here. Uh, this is this is huge. The story of Amari Stoudemire is massive in Israel. Uh, it's not, not to be discounted. Uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv Basketball may have been signing some great players who used to play in the NBA, like Andrew Godelok, who played for the L.A. Lakers. But Amari Stoudemire, Rookie of the Year, a all-star, somebody that has, you know, bigger than life character and that has, uh, has been to Israel before. This is not his first time. He actually represented Canada in the, uh, the uh, last Maccabee Games. He didn't play, but he came with the Canadian, uh, Canadian contingent of the Maccabee and was at many different events. My children had a chance to meet with him. He was a 5% owner of a pole Jerusalem, which he had to sell his shares to the team to be able to be an active player next year. Uh, this is great stuff, Nachum. In sports, what, what could be better? I was talking to a player today from Hapol Beersheba. His name is John Ogu. He is a Nigerian. He uh, has been playing here in Israel for the last three years. And he said to me, he's about six foot four, big central midfielder, and also a great lover of Israel. Otherwise, he wouldn't be here. There's, you know, there's no, reason why some of these people would be here. He loves Israel. He loves to be in the Jewish state and, and help our Israeli teams. We have three teams right now in soccer that are about to, on the cusp of qualifying for European competition this coming year. Last year, it was only Maccabi Tel Aviv. This year, we have Apol Beersheba, Maccabi Tel Aviv, and Beitar Jerusalem. Wow. All three of them. And he said to me, this is him talking, somebody that is not a, a, you know, a member of the tribe. And he goes to me and says, this is so amazing for Israeli sports. Last night, Yard in Derby, we're going to be fighting on three European spots to go into Europe and to represent Israel because each team I know represents the whole country. It's not just that we represent our city that we're coming from, but we represent the country internationally. When we are going to a country like Scotland, and which they're going to be doing next week, Paul Beersheba, they'll be playing Celtic, one of the great 
greatest all-time European franchises. The the fact that a team from Beersheba is going to play in front of 60-plus thousand people at one of the greatest stadiums in Europe, what a sign. What, hmm. It's an amazing accomplishment for, for Israel in sports and athletics. Yeah, amazing nothing. For those of us who sometimes focus on the, uh, the way Israel is treated in isolated episodes on the international sports scene, what you're telling us is certainly a different story and one we should be emphasizing. Rabbi Josh Halleckman is with us, sports rabbi from Israel, celebrating Yardane Jerby's victory yesterday, bronze medalist at the Rio Olympics. And you've heard what kind of reaction it's had in Israel. By the way, you mentioned the, uh, you mentioned the old uh, Malcha Arena. Is, is the new one right there? Or is it also next door to it? Like Where, where is it, the new Actually, one? Actually... It's right next to the stadium and right next to the mall. So if you know where the Malcha Mall is, where the stadium is, it's literally right next door. And the old eleven thousand. The old uh, arena was there. No, the old arena was actually in the neighborhood of Malcha, in the in the middle of the residential neighborhood, a twenty two hundred seat arena. Gotcha. Um, Let's put it this way: Wayu's gymnasium (laughs) was a, a much finer facility. Right, from what well, I remember. Let's put it that way, Nahum. So this new one has five times the capacity. Yeah, I mean, it's 11,000 seats. Wow. It's bigger than the arena in Tel Aviv and Yad Eliyahu, the one that you were at for that uh, EuroLeague game that time. It's a little bit bigger, about 500, 600 seats larger, and it's amazing. Jerusalem needed Forget yeah. about for sports. Obviously, for sports, it's great. But the fact that we now have in Jerusalem a state-of-the-art arena that can host concerts, be it Avram Fried or be it Alipa or be it whoever else that may come here from you know this and that, that we have a, a now something better than a convention center that we had in Binyan Ehoma. Binyan right. Ehoma only seated about two, something twenty-five hundred people, and it was you know let's say it was not the latest in technology. Uh, building across from the Tachan America's Eve. Now you have a full-fledged arena that can have trade shows, that can have conventions. It's uh, I got to tell you, I got to hand it to Mayor Nir Barkat. He's done a fantastic job in Jerusalem. We are, you know, we're moving ahead light speed in this city. Yeah, no question about it. Um, and I look forward to seeing that arena. And what is this season? Hapol Yerushalayim plays from what month to what month? Apollo Jerusalem, Apollo Jerusalem basketball will begin training camp at the beginning of September. They have a couple of preseason tournaments, and then they begin their league in October, and they also begin their European league. So not only do they play domestically, where they play Maccabi Tel Aviv and Maccabi Haifa and Naharia and many of the other teams, they also will be playing in Europe, as they do pretty much every year, against teams from Italy and Spain and and many of them, France and Germany and England and so forth and so on. So they'll also be participating in European basketball. And the minute, I got to tell you this, got to give credit to the Paul Jerusalem, uh, their PR guys. The minute Amari Stoudemire was signed, I got a text message on my phone. Make sure you get your season tickets now. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> and I got to tell you, they sold, from what I understood, the two hours after he signed, they sold 500 more season tickets, and they already had about 6,500 season ticket holders. Within two hours, 500 season tickets. Hmm, i got to start investigating what the secondary market is like for those tickets. Could be a good investment, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> the, um, <laughs> by the way, uh, Yardane Jerby is from Natanya, so a special shout-out to Natanya Israel, who I'm sure are celebrating with the rest of the country um, mm-hmm. this great achievement. 
the Hapol Yerushalayim uh, sports season ends when? It starts, you just said, in October. The EuroLeague and the uh, the local league, so to speak, when do they come to an end? They come to an end in the month of June. So oh, they'll wow. play through European basketball through usually, if they can keep advancing in their tournament, they're actually not in the EuroLeague, they're in uh, the Euro Cup. Just a secondary tournament for the EuroLeague. Maccabi Tel Aviv is in the EuroLeague. Right. But they'll play, hopefully, if they advance, which they have not had very much luck the last few years, and everybody's hoping that they'll advance this year to the next rounds, uh, they could play into, you know, deep into April, May. The domestic season ends at the beginning of June. And uh, next year, actually, Nahum, next, uh, next summer, we have the, uh, we have the European basketball championship, uh, basketball championships, which Israel is actually hosting some of those games. It's going to be split over four different countries, if I'm correct. Israel will be one of those four countries hosting a number of basketball games of the European Championship next have, year. Have they? It's very exciting. Has Israel ever hosted a regional before? Uh, they've never hosted this level. This right. is the highest. They've hosted the EuroLeague a championship game back in 2004 when Maccabi Tel Aviv actually won, even though it's a... It just happened to be that Maccabi Tel Aviv was in the game, and luckily they had a home court advantage. But uh, to host a tournament like this, we've had three tournaments, but never the European or World Championship were a part of thereof uh, being in in Israel. So that's a very big accomplishment um, to be able to be one of the finalists, and then of course being chosen as one of the four countries that were representing. Uh, the European Championships next year. That's fantastic. All right, so we different countries. So we we, we should have the Maccabea next year, Nahum. In the we summer, have the Maccabea next year. The sports don't end here. Yeah, I know. The summer of 2017 is going to be something. Um, and in terms of the uh, Israel hosting that, uh, you know, the part, the piece of the tournament you described. So I guess we could expect some uh, calls for boycotts. Please God, right? Because w- once you hear the calls for boycotts, you know we've made it, right? <laughs> That's for sure. But I got to tell you, in basketball. Israel is a very, very strong country. It's recognized by the, the heads of the European, uh, European basketball and, of course, the FIBA also is one of the very important countries. Because Israel's been very successful, Maccabi Tel Aviv has held that torch for so many years as being a very, important, uh, a very, very important team. And the owners are very important within the European system, hmm. which... Uh, which is good. It doesn't mean that there won't be any boycott calls, of course. Right. That's uh, you know that that's obviously uh, going to happen, and unfortunately, we're going to see that uh, when a Paul Beresheva goes to Scotland in Celtic. There is already uh, already talk of having at least five hundred people that are going to be protesting a Paul Beresheva being in the tournament, and there will be protests outside of the stadium. I'm sure there may be something. You know, hopefully, not inside the stadium because they would be punished pretty severely by UEFA, which is the European. Uh, the European overhead organization, but uh, listen, it is what it is. Hey, do you have, do you have a do you have a it cl- is what it is. Do you have a clear picture um, uh, of whether, in fact, there was any type of recognition or memorial for the eleven nineteen seventy two Munich Israeli athletes who were murdered uh, at this Olympics? Do, do you have any idea if, in fact, that that did occur or not? It actually did occur. Finally, after. How many years, Nachum, since 1972, yeah. the Munich Games? Finally, finally, the Olympic Committee was strong enough and were able to, they, they were able to put aside all the criticism and the negative, negativity, and they decided to have 
in the Olympic Village, a memorial set up, not just for the, of course, the 11 Israeli athletes that were murdered, but other athletes that were killed in terrorist or type of activities. If you remember also 96 of the Atlanta Games, there, right. was, a, there was a small bombing, right. which took the life of, I think, a couple of athletes. So even though it wasn't a separate event, um, it answered the call of uh, Yael Arad, Anki Spitzer, of course, the uh, the wife of Andre Spitzer, who has been at the forefront of fighting for the 11 Olympic athletes that were murdered by terrorists in Munich to be to be memorialized. They were memorialized finally with the head of the Olympic Committee Bach being there. Uh, it was actually a, a very moving uh, ceremony. I was able to watch uh, most of it on TV. And from the people I've spoken to that were actually there, they said it really was very tasteful. And uh, it really also took away a little bit of the criticism of Thomas Bach, who's the president of the IOC right now. Yeah. He had come into the job a couple of years ago, and he'd been. there was some criticism by the Israeli side. Uh, you know, is he a friend of Israel, not a friend of Israel? He had said certain things in the past, but he really has been more than a friend to Israel, and got to give him all the credit that's due to him, really absolutely all the credit that is due to him, uh, to be able to finally recognize uh, the 11 athletes that were murdered in, in cold blood in Munich. And, uh, you know, they'll, from now on, every Olympic Games, they will have in the Olympic Village a special ceremony for all the athletes that yeah. were uh, that you know that were killed from any type of terrorist type of uh, activity or yeah. accident. I believe there was also an accident at one point. Yeah, you could always count. Well. You could always count on people eventually uh, memorializing Jews. That that you can count on. Uh, Rabbi Josh Halakman is the sports rabbi. Did you have a notion of going to Rio at all? Uh, I did not. Uh, I'm so busy here with Maccabi Tel Aviv running the uh, the charitable foundation. Um, uh, I have I have no time for anything. I'm totally involved with Maccabi Tel Aviv and the football club, of course, the soccer club, and I'm speaking to many groups about Zionism, about Hasbara, about Maccabi Tel Aviv, the great history that Maccabi Tel Aviv has, and uh, just running all kinds of amazing events here in Israel from the youth, from our youth department with organizations. Tonight, one of our sponsors is actually hosting one of our one of our great partners, one of our amazing, amazing educational partners, and they decided to donate the box for tonight's game to 12 uh, deserving children for that. So they're going to have a VIP evening and excitement. We have a great group who stand with us uh, next week, God willing. And uh, two weeks ago, we had a great Taglit group come to us. Uh, mm -hmm. It was amazing. I tell you, it's amazing work. It's amazing work. It's done a lot of work. And really in soccer, nothing. Did you know how long our off-season was this year? How long? You know, baseball was four or five months, right. hockey, six months, whatever it is. Right. The off-season began uh, June 4th or June 3rd or so because there was national team games, and uh, training camp opened on June 14th. What? Two <laughs> weeks of an off-season. Can you imagine? I can't Two imagine that. Two weeks of an off-season. Hey, I, I meant to ask you... Um, <laughs> How many people were um, were um, uh, ambivalent about the Cleveland Cavaliers' victory um, because they were supporters of Coach David Blatt, who, of course, was fired by Cleveland in the middle of the championship season? Boy, LeBron James became public enemy number one of them. Wow. <laughs> not so, so not the, to say that people didn't watch. Ever, I'll tell you, 
everybody was watching. Everybody was watching, and everybody somehow were big fans of the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> so except the, for one of my children. So the, except for one of my children who was rooting for LeBron. But so other than that, it was he was public enemy number one boy. Woo! So the Blatt fi- oh so the Blatt firing certainly who was he was the coach of Maccabi Tel Aviv for a while. The Blatt firing yeah. certainly had an effect on Israeli society. Who's the coach now, by the way? Who coaches Maccabi Tel Aviv now in basketball? Erez Edelstein, who is a redhead, and uh, the Jinji, he's, uh, he's also the coach of the Israel national team. Hmm. Very successful coach, uh, has a is basketball lifer. Uh, we're looking forward to good things with him. I think he's uh, very professional. He knows his, uh, knows his work. Fans are very excited. We had a pretty down year Maccabi Tel Aviv basketball did last year. One of their uh, one of the worst seasons in history, uh, but things are looking on the up. They signed some good players, and uh, we'll see. You know, time will tell, as they say. You never, you never know in sports. That's why they play the games now. How's Tal Brody doing? He's doing great. Got to bump into him a little while ago. He's fantastic. Uh, he looks great. He's one of the greatest ambassadors. Oh, he's amazing. That Israel has. He's he amazing. really is. And you've met him many times. Yeah, and you, you know what kind of amazing person he is uh, the way that he speaks about israel and israeli sports uh, throughout the world is uh, you know is an amazing accomplishment the groups that he meets here in israel also is fantastic and uh, what could you say i mean tell brody is you know he, he is he's a living legend now yeah he, really, he is a living legend not only is he a living legend the presenter today modi baron at this really a soccer event that i was at at the president's house he ended with a quote by Talbro, <laughs> and, and he and he and he imitated his American Hebrew accent as he did it to end this ceremony. The Babe really got a good laugh. The, ba- the Babe Ruth of Israel, right? The Babe Ruth of Israel. He is. Yeah. I tell you, he. I mean, listen, Kibbutz Galayot 101. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Uh, sports rabbi, you're the best. Thank you, Rabbi Josh. Always a pleasure speaking to you. And Mazal Tov. Congratulations on Israel's bronze. All right, Nachum, we'll speak to you soon. LL Israel, LL Israel, everybody. Root for Israel. We have another week and a half. We can bring home a few more medals. Turn on those TVs. You know, root for Israel. It's the greatest thing you can do for supporting the greatest country in the whole world. There he is, the great sports rabbi, Rabbi Josh Halleckman. Mazal Tov, Israel. Um, that'll wrap up a uh, Wednesday broadcast here at JM in the AM. <laughs> I'll tell you. Even even when it comes to Israeli sports, I can't resist. Um, hey, a special message to Daf Yomiyid. Hey, Daf Yomiyid, as you bike and listen to us all day long, I want to say thank you. And I hope those thunderstorms do not affect you whatsoever. Uh, brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live in the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and on the NSN app. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more tomorrow in our nine days format beginning at 6 a.m. Make sure to tune in. Till the Nahum Sigal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.